good morning to everybody. Morning, Jay. How are you, Honorable Hon? Morning, you. Okay, thanks. Is uh, Honorable Pretenbach coming? I would hope so, Chair. Okay. Um, <laughs> I have uh, sent a, re a WhatsApp reminder just now because it is a bit earlier than we would ordinarily start. So maybe she missed the start time. Yes, 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 yes. No, that's good. Honorable Janji. Recording in progress. Morning, Morning Chair. Morning, Chair. Uh, don't worry about uh, Brayton Bach. Uh, it's a daily <laughs> problem. Let's just continue. In the international mediation uh, is becoming much more urgent. Yeah, I, I, what, I think there's a simple solution, solution Chair. The Honorable Jainke must just become a, a permanent a chair of plenaries, and then we can excuse <laughs> me. <laughs> oh, that is your wish. That is your wish. At, 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 your that, at, yeah. that for, at that forum, at least, is in the public spotlight. So then he, it forces him to somewhat behave. So you, you, you want to reject him upward? Yes, we'll, we'll reject him in an upward fashion. <laughs> no, no, that's good. That's good. That's good. Uh, how many members are on the virtual platform now? It's one, two, three, four. Honorable Velma. Yes, Jay, good morning, good morning. I decided to just join uh, for a while. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, okay. How is it going? I'm very good, I'm good, thank you. Um, D-Day is tomorrow, so just to switch off my mind a little bit, I decided to join you all. Oh, okay, okay, okay. No, no, that's good. No, we will be with you. Will be with you. Thank you. Thank you, Che. Thank you very much. Uh, I guess let's just uh, deal with uh, with uh, some few issues before we start at nine. Um, I've been made aware that the program has been circulated for today. Um, has been circulated for today. Uh, in fact, we took the program from the previous um, uh, public hearings on the cannabis and, uh, and even the previous ones. Uh, so uh, in terms of the program, uh, a presenter will have uh, 20 minutes to make uh, his or her presentation and then that will be followed by questions and answers. We have time allocations as reflected uh, so that uh, we are able to ensure fairness uh, that everybody has got the same amount of time. 
Uh, I will find members with the problem as circulated. It's in order, Chair. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, welcome, Honorable uh, Glennis Breitenbach. Uh, thanks, Mr. Chair. I was just doing a radio interview. Thank you. Oh, okay. I hope you were not insulting Honorable Janji. Oh, no, I said that for very special occasions. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we are fine with the program, uh, Honorable Members, as it is. Is that correct? Uh, since there is no counter to Honorable Janji's uh, acceptance of the program, I take it that uh, those who are not in favor of the program, since they are quiet, they will forever hold their breath. Indeed. <laughs> and then uh, for tomorrow, uh, Mr. Ramano, for tomorrow, uh, I made a request that uh, at least if we can be done by half past two, because uh, tomorrow it's uh, peace and stability uh, questions. So some members will be asking questions uh, to the ministers. Um, uh, so how is, uh, can you flight the day for tomorrow? Can you flight the program for tomorrow? Okay. Members, that is the program for tomorrow on Wednesday, the 2nd of March. Uh, is there, uh, thank you very much, Honorable Ramano, uh, Mr. Ramano. Um, is there any issue that members would want to raise before we start the meeting? Okay, hey, um, I know we have received it, but is it possible to just quickly see the program for today? And then in terms of the program for tomorrow, uh, it is so that it, it ends quite near to the beginning of the sitting. So I don't know whether there's any possibility for us to start in half an hour earlier and maybe find a presenter, given the fact that it's virtual, who, who might be willing to take that early slot. That sounds fair, members. Uh, is there any objection to that one? No, objection, no objection, since it's a sensible suggestion. No objection. Yes, no, I, think, I think so, because uh, if we target uh, 10 to... Uh, it's possible that uh, 10 or 15 minutes might be added. So I think the earlier we finish, the better. Um, so, uh, Mr. Ramano, can you adjust the program to start much earlier uh, so that we can this be done by half past two? Okay. So, uh, good morning, Chair. Maybe just to explain, uh, just one thing, Chair. Yes. If you look at the program there, we have got three organizations that uh, from legal academics who still have not yet confirmed their attendance. Mm -hmm. So there is a possibility that we might finish around about uh, 20 past 12. Uh, but uh, if those three organizations 
uh, confirm attendance, then I will have to adjust it uh, and then we'll start in. Okay. Oh, no, I must take my phone. Yeah, so that you don't miss anything. Just hold on, let me connect. Once I'm connected, then you can. Uh, there is there is somebody who is interfering with our meeting. Um, but I think uh, uh, just between now and one, ensure that you you confer with those you confirm with those organizations. But in case they are all available, I think Honorable Horn's uh, suggestion that will still hold that if all of them are available, then we start a little bit earlier. If if one of them is not available. Uh, which will uh, free us an hour or so, that would be fine. But uh, if you can work uh, on that program and um, so that by the time we adjourn at, uh, at two today, you give us an update as to how the program tomorrow looks like. Okay, Jeff. Thank you very much. Um, is there any issue that uh, members would want to deal with just before we we start with the meeting relating to the proceedings of today? Not anything under the sun, just relating to the today's business. Um, none. So I we need to believe that COSATO will start at nine o'clock uh, for 20 minutes until half past nine. Um, can we have the five minutes, in fact, the three minutes uh, to finish our tea or coffee? Then we start at two minutes to nine because at nine o'clock, Cosato should be presenting. We should not be coming back, but Cosato should be presenting at nine o'clock. Uh, can we have a two minute, a three minutes break? Thank you. We have two apologies um, from Honorable Masako Jele and Honorable Ramulu Beng. They will join later, they are flying to Cape Town. So let's start at two minutes tonight.
can we fly Cosato's uh, slides? Uh, good morning to the representative of Cosato. Uh, good morning to everybody who is watching on the virtual platform and at home. Uh, we are going to be dealing with public hearings on the law and court bill. Um, so all organizations have been given 20 minutes to make their presentations. And then after they've made their presentations, their presentations will be followed by questions and answers. So we will start with Cosato. Uh, who is representing Cosato? Uh, good morning, Committee Chair. My name is Matthew Parks from Cosato. Uh, Mr. Parks, how are you? I'm all right, how are you, sir? Good morning, okay. members. Thank you very much. Uh, over to you. Okay. All right. No, good morning, Chair and members. Um, thanks very much for giving us space as COSATU um, to share our submission on the land court bill. Um, I think, Honorable Chair, I won't, I, I doubt I'll take 20 minutes. I think I can take about 10 minutes. Um, I think, as the Honorable Whip um, said, Comrade Chair, this, this bill for us, at least as a federation, is straightforward. It makes sense. Uh, but let me just get into it, Chair. Uh, sorry, my apologies, Chair. Uh, my name is Matthew Parks uh, from Cosatu. Yes. Yes. Um, so, Chair, I think just in, the, in terms of the introduction, um, one is Cosatu. Um, we welcome the land court bill. Um, we think it's progressive and it's long overdue. Um, we will support its we support its progressive provisions and we would support its speedy passage uh, by Parliament. Chair, we do think there is a need uh, for honourable members of Parliament to look at perhaps strengthening or tightening the provision on the jurisdiction of the court um, in its scope, especially with regards to the extension of Tenure of Security Act, um, you know, specifically the issue of evictions um, of, from farms of farm workers and their families. We know that it is provided for in the schedule, but it's not in the bill itself. Um, shall we, whilst we support the bill in the land court, we are worried about uh, government's ability to adequately resource the court, and we are sensitive to the fiscal pressures, but it is a major concern for us as well. Our interest, Chair, in terms of the land court, um, we have members who are farm workers. We have three unions which organize farm workers, so they always face the challenge of evictions and their families. Of course, we also have members who are public servants who work in the courts as well. Um, and of course, uh, the issue of land reform, land restitution is a pressing political issue for the entire society. Um, that includes people in rural areas who want uh, land to farm, but it also includes uh, persons in urban areas, be it cities or towns, who simply want enough land to build a house or to build a small business, etc. on. So it's a cross-cutting society-wide issue. Um, so in terms of our support for the land court bill as Kosato, we, yeah, we welcome, we support it. Um, we, without parliament cutting corners, which it must never do, but we do urge a speedy passage through parliament. We think there is sufficient time and we think that will give sufficient time for the president to ascend it and for government to get ready to implement it. Um, these might sound like straightforward uh, comments to make, but we've often seen good bills 
pass through Parliament and sit in the President's desk for for months, even a year, and then sit in the Department's desks for a year before impl- being implemented. Uh, but we think, Chair, it's a progressive bill. We think it will help to address or assist in addressing the perennial delays in resolving thousands of cases, um, be it on evictions or thousands of land restitution cases. And we've often seen them drag out. Uh, we think it also helped to establish and to formalize the necessary judicial expertise in land matters, um, especially on restitution eviction cases, so that you have the in-house capacity to deal with those issues, as opposed to it being uh, spread throughout the courts. So we think it does provide the necessary administrative flexibility for the state um, to ensure the cases can be held in areas close to communities. So whilst the land court itself might be based in Johannesburg, but the bill provides for flexibility for it to rotate. And that is also why it's critical for the resources to be availed to ensure that we bring these courts uh, to communities, to rural areas, etc. Today, I think we want to welcome the provisions that will ensure that judges are remunerated at the same level of their peers. Um, and this, we think, will help to ensure the necessary seniority and expertise and also the stability. This is, again, it's a straightforward issue, Chair, but we've seen the Labour Court, when we don't do that, it does create issues afterwards. Chair, I think our one concern is that we felt there's a need to clarify the scope of the courts. So... We welcome the proposed scope of the courts to cover matters provided for in various land reform legislation. You know, for example, the restitution of land rights, um, the land reform, upgrading of land tenure rights, the extension of security of tenure acts, etc. Uh, but we are concerned that this scope isn't explicitly stated in the in the in the bill itself. You know, for example, in the objectives, uh, but rather ma- mentioned only in passing in the schedule. And that might be for legal drafting purposes but we think it should rather have been enhanced to the objective itself. Our fear is that this might lead to unnecessary confusion by not only plaintiffs, um, you know, bear in mind you will have farm workers who will not know all the legal technicalities that lawyers would know. Um, we think it might expose defendants, or might even we think might cause confusion amongst magistrate courts, etc. So the wording in the bill kind of gives an impression that the land courts are really focused on land restitution, which we understand that actually also focus on evictions as well. Um, so we do feel Chair, the, bill, the bill is a little bit vague and ambiguous with regards to its role involving the eviction of farm workers and labor tenants and the families from land they reside on, on and occupy. So proposal, Chair, and really our only proposal for this bill is that clarity should be provided for in the bill itself, um, citing these acts and the nature of the types of cases that may be brought uh, to it in particular, those falling under the ESTA Act, um, you know, for, specifically the eviction of farm workers and labor tenants and the families from land they occupy or reside in. Um, Chair, just the other issue is that um, it's not for the bill, but just raising it for contextual issues for members as we would go through the budget processes with departments. Um, that, you know, society, we support this, this bill, the establishment of a land court, but we are concerned about government's ability to adequately resource it. Um, to ensure they can really fulfill their legal mandate. We've experienced, chairs, COSATU, as workers, um, the consequences are not adequately resourcing courts. So in the labor courts, it can take workers easily two years for the cases to be heard and to, to be concluded. And of course, that means that uh, workers simply give up when they go to labor courts. They don't have the luxury of time to, to fight a case out for two years. They don't have the, the fees to afford 
etc. Et and going to court and having a matter postponed 12 times, it just leaves them to walk away. So we're fearful that we mustn't replicate that in the land court. Um, we're dealing with people who are much poorer, much less resourced, etc., who actually don't have the time to, to go to court day after day. Chair, I think we've also seen, for example, during this last two years of COVID-19, um, when government has cut budgets across government departments entities without the necessary nuance. So, for example, in the CCMA, government cuts the budget by 300 billion rand over the medium-term expenditure framework, and that caused a huge crisis in the CCMA. Um, it caused cases not to be, be heard in one month, but to be heard in three months. It caused commissioners to be retrenched. And so this has occurred whilst we've seen um, millions of workers losing their jobs, wages, etc. So again, it goes back to the point that we need to really ensure we adequately resource these courts if they're to be able to do their job in full. Um, so in conclusion, Chair, um, at, yeah, as Kosato, we just want to say we support this bill. We support a speedy passage by Parliament. Uh, we think it's really going to provide an additional boost in support of land reform um, and to help to ensure properly capacitated and dedicated courts to hear land cases. And then just lastly, Chair, we would urge honourable members to consider um, an additional strengthening of the objectives of the bill to ensure that its scope is clear to everybody and it includes specifically dealing with the eviction of farm workers, labour tenants and their families. And then lastly, Chair, I think we'd want to urge on all members when we go through the budget cycle on the committee and the department um, that we ensure that these land courts are sufficiently resourced to fulfill their mandates. Um, so that's our presentation, Chair. Um, I think I've even exceeded my 10-minute objective. Um, but yeah, I think, yeah, with no need to belabor the issue, I think just to give our support and to welcome this bill and hope our contribution makes members work a bit easier. Thanks very much, Honourable Chair Members. Thank you very much, uh, Comrade Matthew Max. Um, now we are within your 10 minutes. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, members, are there any questions to Corsato? To Mr. Parks? Honorable Janji? Um, no, thank you, Chair. And uh, let me thank. Uh, Mr. Matthew Parks, the this face and voice of Kosatu that we see every day. Thank you for the presentation uh, on this important work. I I just have one um, question, inviting him to comment on chair, given uh, the consistent and overriding request, uh, genuinely so that he's making to, to us, including the president, about the speedy passage of the, uh, of the bill. Um, so I want to invite him to just uh, perhaps speak to us about what his view and impression is because the question might uh, help us or his comment, what his view and impression is about the manner and the, and the way we have attended to the three GBV bills in terms of the time and, and passage uh, processes. If you could comment on that um, and, 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 and whether he thinks that we uh, 
that 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 is a the passage the quick passage is looking for and what he would have picked up out of those three bills and i'm just raising those uh, to just invite his comment on that because his comment on that might assist us in answering his his uh, concern about uh, the passage on this on this bill thank you chair thank you very much honorable janji honorable horn thanks chair um and, and good morning to mr parks and colleagues once again um chair um mr parks um <sighs> seem to to be of the view that the bill in its current format would already allow for this court to deal with all matters incidental to the use of land like evictions etc and i must admit that i did not read it that way now he says that it the, the scope of the bill must be in explicit terms be updated to allow for that so i would want to hear from him why ease of the view that it's already there the only way i can foresee that it can be brought into the jurisdiction of the scottish is if it would be permissible for the minister by way of notice as the bill envisage to 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 bring that into the area of jurisdiction of the court and and i think it even then it's debatable whether that that indeed would be a lawful exercise so i, I want to hear his views whether that whether his his vision that the, this these courts must deal with all these matters wouldn't in fact call for uh many uh uh edits and and, and expansion to the current bill before this committee um and then secondly chair i would want to ask his comment given the the specific advantage kosato uh, holds by by having a huge um emphasis and to an extent hopefully some expertise on on rights issues but whether the, whether he is satisfied that uh, that the the right balance in terms of equality before the law and and the the right to have disputes um dealt with by our courts um is is settled in this bill in in a manner that would would satisfy equality before the law and in this regard i specifically given the constitutional court's finding yesterday would want to ask him to comment on whether he think it's ultimately constitutional um for the bill to envisage uh punitive orders against landowners who do not want to subject themselves to to the mediation clauses within the bill but would want to insist um formal court process to processes to unfold in order to deal with disputes uh, whether that ultimately will satisfy the demand uh, that all must be treated equally before the law thank you chair thank you thank you honorable horn uh uh mr metupaps oh before honorable vermanu votes drakhan 
Thank you, Chair. Good morning to everyone. Uh, good morning, Mr. Matthew Parks. Nice to see you. I did not plan on asking a question, but something, a, a very burning issue that you keep on repeating is the evictions, the evictions of farm workers. Mm -hmm. And that is a major concern, especially within my constituency area in Moms, uh, in Swartland, Swartland. Uh, they face a lot of evictions. It's the reality. It's there. As well as uh, the farm workers who have been on the farms for many, many years living on the land, uh, maybe there's a, an exchange of ownership. A new owner buys the property or the land, and then they get evicted because the new owner doesn't know who they are. It's not included in the sale of my farm, so they get evicted. Now, what is your view in terms of the bill? Will the bill um, really strengthen the issue to protect further evictions? Because, to be honest, uh, the farm workers, they don't have resources for, for legal services. And they live very, very far um, they're not really near legal centers or legal aid. They don't know until the last minute when they've already lost their homes and then they get evicted, then it's too late. So I'm curious if, in your view, um, will this bill strengthen the prevention of evictions from happening? And I mean, we, also to have a, a mutual understanding between the owner and the farm workers to prevent evictions. I'm just curious on your view with regards to that. Thank you, Chair. Thank you very much. Uh, Comrade Mithipaks. Um, <clears throat> no, thanks very much, Chair. Yeah, no, thanks to, to all our members. Um, I think it's good to be in this committee. I haven't been in this committee for quite some time. There's many, uh, I don't want to say old, uh, but long-standing comrades and friends here. Um, so just chair to Honorable Janki, um, I think the, the, the good work the committee did on passing the three gender-based uh, violence acts is the role model. Um, those are very complex uh, bills. Uh, and I think the committee really did excellent work, comprehensive work in terms of facilitating public participation, but also going through the nuts and bolts, the technicalities. So we were really quite pleasantly surprised when parliament was able to conclude that work by I think September last year. And the president was then able to sign into effect um, in January this year. So I think for us, that's the kind of role model because we, we have seen chair many other bills as hence we, we made the point <clears throat> across parliament, um, which take for years and years. Um, you remember, you might recall that after the last, or the fifth parliament, I think about 19 bills weren't concluded in time and they had to be revived in the sixth parliament. And of course, we've also seen often that you know, Parliament might pass a bill and it might then sit in the President's office for six months, for a year. And we've had at times to intervene as Kosar to, to get it brought to his attention, uh, to be signed. Even then, Chair, we've had huge expenditures in many departments, not just, not just as, for example, but many departments, um, where the President has signed an act and then a year later, the department still hasn't even gazetted it or fully gazetted all its provisions, let alone re uh, resourced it, et cetera. So I think that is the plea. Of course, Chair, we are also bear in mind that we are fairly close to the next elections. And yes, it might be 24 months away, 
but you know we're kind of in the getting towards the end so that, you know we need to conclude work this year at the latest next year um etc so i think that is a simple plea but we're not too worried about this committee i think that um justice committee has always been one of the the more efficient committees in parliament for many many years and i think yeah as honorable janky is saying the 3 gbv bills uh, speedy passage was was gives one confidence of course chair arobe mustn't cut corners because that can also come back to haunt us so we must do the work properly no shortcuts uh, but efficiently etc um chair i think just to to honorable horn um so when we, when we read through the bill and then specifically if you look under the schedule um from pages 24 to 30 then it it fleshes out um the powers allocated to the courts from different from other different legislation so it mentions the upgrading of land tenure rights act the land reform the two land reform acts uh the restitution of land rights um communal communal property association and formal land rights um the extension of security of tenure act which deals with the issue of of farming evictions um the prevention of unlawful evictions so it speaks to all those acts that's in the schedule and that might be perfectly fine in terms of the normal legal drafting legislation but i think if honorable horn has a different view than than our view and we're kind of sharing the same kind of concern um we think it's critical just to in the objectives of the bill to specify quite clearly because it does give impression at least to us that it's going to focus on the issue of land claims restitution etc but when you look at the schedule it speaks to evictions and other land rights and i think chair it would make sense and i think the objective of the bill is that all land issues as honorable horn is saying would fall under the court but we think given this illegal issues given that magistrates look at what's written in black and white before them um the more clarity the better and also given that as honorable uh, nuhadrushan is saying you're dealing with farmers who don't have the luxury of education luxury of access to to lawyers and all of that um so the the more is clear the better i think for for all parties um and we think the place to do that would be an objective so just simply an additional clause saying we're dealing with these issues etc um so it's enhancing it's strengthening it's not a fundamental we don't think it's a fundamental deviation it's actually just uplifting what's already there in the, in the schedule um i doubt most of us read the schedules afterwards um let alone a farm worker in pampirstad or wherever um chair the other question of honorable horn around mediation <clears throat> i mean we support the issue of mediation of arbitration um one is that it benefits farm workers because farm workers don't have access to lawyers you also want to resolve whatever dispute or conflict might be there um as quickly as amicably as possible you want to maintain the relationship between the farm worker and the farmer um you don't want it to break down mediation arbitration is a critical way to try to resolve that in a win-win approach at a way that saves costs for everybody including the farmers um it should be the first port of call so similarly how we resolve labor rights issues the first port of call is the ccma again it benefits everybody it's cheap it's quick it's efficient it retains retains the relationship um and chair i think for us it should be compulsory so we think we we support the, the bill's provisions giving the power in that regard chair just in terms of um honorable nehatrushin um look the bill is good i mean the bill speaks to it the, it's going to enhance the capacity of the state give a dedicated knowledge um and focus for land matters to this court and give the adequate status and resources for that court um 
I think the challenge will be around implementation. As always with government, we can pass all the nice laws of nice English, um, but implementation is always a huge issue. So I think as critical chair, we have about 800,000 farm workers. So there's a need for, for government, for, for trade unions, for COSATU, for even our colleagues in AgriSA, et cetera, to really have a mass education awareness program even for your broadcasting institutions like SABC, the community radio stations, so people can be aware of their rights, etc. Most farm workers wouldn't be aware of the rights. They're not aware of the existing rights under ESTA that you can't be evicted, for example, at night or in bad weather. Um, Chair, there is legal aid. And as you know, that um, legal aid is also under huge financial pressures. Um, Chair, we were also quite disappointed and had spent a lot of time with the uh, Department of Rural Development. They set up a toll-free hotline a good initiative um, for farm workers to, to call when they're being evicted. But the hotline never worked, rarely worked. It was disconnected, off, whatever the story was. Um, and it was meant to link farm workers to, uh, I think, Halton and Chido, a law, law firm, one of the, you know, the top law firms in the country, where governor put aside money to represent farm workers. But because the toll line wasn't working, because farm workers were not aware of it, it was never publicized, that money just definitely didn't get utilized. Um, so I think, yeah, so the, the bills can be good, honorable chair and members, but the question is around implementation. And of course, we must all play a role, even as a civil society, to help make sure society is aware of the laws. And of course, chair, I think we also think it is critical for AgriSA, for farmers to embrace the progressive spirit of the laws and the bill. It's going to benefit them as well. Um, you know, to have a productive business, a productive farm, you need good labor relations, you need good labor practices. So the more we can engage and resolve each other's concerns, uh, the more that all of society will, will benefit. Um, so, yeah, so I think, Chair, we've also lastly discussed, you know, quite a bit as a society, the whole land reform issue. I think often because we've got distracted by the whole expropriation debate, we forget about the other equally critical matters. And we think this bill will be one of those critical tools in a much more holistic and comprehensive uh, campaign to resolve the land issue. So hopefully I've answered the questions of honorable members, uh, honorable chair. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Matthew Parks. Uh, I see no further questions. Uh, thank you very much uh, for the presentation. Um, once all the presentations are done, the department is going to come back and respond to all the issues that have been raised through this process of uh, public hearings. And then as you know, that we will, we will still have to go to the bill clause by clause uh, in the process of uh, drafting uh, before the bill is passed. Uh, so it's still, uh, it's still a process, but uh, we, we think that uh, before June, uh, we should be done with the bill. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Mr. Metal Parks. Thank you very much, Kosato. The next mm -hmm. one is Sakelika. Mr. Martin from Standen. Uh, thank you, Chair. I hope I'm coming through clearly. Um, honorable members, uh, thank you for the opportunity. My remarks today uh, will be quite brief. My name is Martin van Staden. I speak to you as a legal fellow at the independent business community, Sakeliga. 
Sokaliha regards itself as a coordination mechanism of entrepreneurs and business persons who fulfill the important task of balancing state power and bringing about a state-proof economic order. Regrettably, uh, the business community, particularly uh, uh, when I say that I speak of small and medium enterprises, have in recent years uh, somewhat toiled under uh, state measures that have made commerce quite difficult. And uh, standing with Sokaliha in this respect are uh, about over uh, 12,000 members. Now, honorable members, uh, Sokaliha has repeatedly expressed itself in favor of the principle of restitution, uh, which the proposed land court uh, is largely dedicated to. Uh, because Sokaliha believes fundamentally in a uh, free market economic order, a concomitant implication of that is that ill-gotten property must be returned to its rightful owners. This is a principle that every aspect of South African common law recognizes, right from the English and Roman Dutch roots to the more contemporary recognition of African customary law. Restitution is simply a matter of justice and is unassailable. Now, in following this principle, we must, however, be careful not to forsake other elements of justice. And the specific other element of justice that I have in mind here is the discovery of truth. The truth is simply not self-evident. One cannot make decisions of truthfulness and of fact simply on the basis of the say-so of a person, particularly not in the legal or in the political realm. In this respect, we turn to clause 22 of the Land Court Bill. This is the only aspect of the bill that I will be commenting on today, honorable members, but it must be said that there are a few other aspects of the bill that are concerning. And in this respect, I must defer to the submissions that I believe Dr. Anthea Jeffrey from the Institute of Race Relations will be making later. As far as clause 22 is concerned, as people like us who were not around when many of these doctrines were originated, we must be careful not to think that the often very complex rules of evidence in law simply fell out of the air and have no practical relevance. Each rule of evidence has an important justification behind it, even though they are rooted in bygone eras. Clause 22 allows the land court to admit any evidence, regardless of the commonly accepted rules of evidence in the judiciary. Clause 22.2, in particular, allows the court to admit hearsay evidence of the circumstances that surround the presumably historical dispossession of land, which we are all quite familiar with. The clause also allows the court discretion as to how much weight to attach to such evidence. Now, we are quite uh, concerned about this clause. Hearsay evidence, honorable members, is evidence that depends upon the credibility of any person other than, the per- other than the person who is giving the evidence. In other words, the person who must be testifying in court is not testifying in court. And therefore, the evidence that, uh, that the person who is testifying claims to know uh, or have is not testable. Now, Sokaliha believes that property rights are crucial to any flourishing economic environment. Property rights must be secure, and this means that they must be protected by law. If we decide whether an owner's property rights will be protected or not on the strength of someone's mere opinion, 
we run the risk of no longer having any property rights whatsoever. None of you, uh, honorable members, must be at risk of losing your property just because someone else says that it is theirs. As a matter of justice, if they think your property is in fact theirs, they must prove it. And this is a principle that is recognized all around the world. We generally do not allow hearsay evidence for a reason, honorable members. And by saying this, I am not only speaking about lies being told to the court, although this is also very relevant. Other than plain dishonesty, ordinary people are not experts, definitely not in a, in a, in a specialized field like, uh, like land and the, the uh, boundaries of property and so forth. They may not remember something accurately, a story that has been passed down, or they might, be simple, might simply be under a misunderstanding of the, the real facts of the matter that they are commenting on. These are, all, uh, these are only some of the factors uh, that could taint evidence that is not corroborated by something other than someone's mere say-so. Now, it is submitted that the Law of Evidence Amendment Act of 1988 provides quite enough room for courts to admit hearsay evidence if it adheres to the formula that is set out in that act. And that formula is about uh, assisting the court to coming to determining whether it would be in the interests of justice to admit, to admit such hearsay evidence. I refer specifically to Section 3.1c of the act, which provides that a court may admit hearsay evidence only after considering the nature of the proceedings and the nature of the evidence, the purpose for which that evidence is tendered, the probative value of the evidence, the reason why the evidence is not being given by the person upon whose credibility the probative value of the evidence depends, and uh, also whether there might be prejudice to one of the parties if hearsay evidence is admitted, and the court is also empowered to take into account any other relevant factors. Now, the court, in other words, must apply its mind to the evidence before it, it, it is admitted. But these criteria, unfortunately, are absent from the land court bill. The prejudice that property owners might suffer when confronted with hearsay evidence is consider considerable. When untestable evidence, which might lead to an owner losing their property, is admitted, then we are placing South Africa's economic prospects, not to mention the interests of justice, uh, at grave risk. Not only may innocent parties who in fact truly own the property, I am of course not referring to, to, to persons who, who own uh, ill-gotten property, but uh, uh, someone who is truly the owner of property might lose that property because a mere opinion was packaged as fact and allowed by the court. But they may also lose property because non-expert witnesses testified on behalf of someone who had first-hand knowledge of the real facts of the matter. More than that, any international investor will hesitate to invest in the development of our economy, and domestic investors might decide to take their money elsewhere. 
Any society that does not respect the rights of property owners is doomed to economic failure. And honorable members, we must be aware of the context in which we we live today. We went into the COVID-19 pandemic already in a recession. South Africa's economic prospects look very, very, very bleak. Uh, And uh, it's it's definitely not not wise to, to, to make that situation even worse. We must tread carefully. We cannot allow a situation to develop where it is pro- where it is the property owner who must prove their own legitimate ownership of property. It is another principle of justice that the one who alleges must prove. And hearsay evidence cannot be regarded as proof when it is not corroborated. If it is allowed as proof, then we will be in a situation where all a purported claimant to land would need to do is allege ownership which the present owner would need to rebut. Honorable members, our constitution demands fairness and justice. Its provisions that surround land reform are imperative, but they do not envision jettisoning the fundamental pillars upon which any just legal system must necessarily rest. I am, of course, not oblivious to the fact that there is some great measure of difficulty associated with proving land claims. That goes without saying. But again, we cannot allow this difficulty to lead us down a path where we believe that truth is self-evident. Just because I cannot find evidence to prove my case cannot mean that I must be absolved of the obligation to prove my case with evidence. There are practical things that the state can do, of course, to facilitate land claims, such as making it significantly easier for South Africans to access historical records of the deeds office and of expropriatory authorities that existed during the colonial and apartheid years. I would submit that probably in most cases, those authorities did keep records of their expropriations and and the dispossessions that they engaged in, and these must be available somewhere. This is a clear situation where government can play a very important informative role. Government must enable equitable access to the courts without a doubt, but it must do so without chipping away at the safeguards and institutions that are necessary to ensuring justice and fairness. As far as clause 22 of the Land Court Bill is concerned, honorable members, it is recommended that the provisions, uh, that provision be made in, in the bill that the Land Court must have regard to the Law of Evidence Amendment Act of 1988 when considering hearsay evidence. This is already our law, uh, honorable members. Uh, there is no reason for us to exclude the Law of Evidence Amendment Act from, from the, the, the procedures and processes of the land court, uh, especially given that uh, the, the Amendment Act's uh, provision surrounding hearsay evidence is particularly aimed at serving the interests of justice. And I would, I would argue uh, the formula that it sets out is quite, quite fair, quite, um, uh, it does allow the court certainly enough discretion to admit hearsay evidence when it is truly necessary. But where that act is not applicable, the land court, as a court entrusted with the safe, safeguarding of the constitutional values that South Africa is committed to, like any court, must always ensure that the evidence that is presented to it is testable. Uh, we, we have an uh, ad- adversarial system of, of uh, the judiciary um, 
And while we do have uh, the, the land court bill that's try to make make that situation a bit less adversarial, uh, understandably, we must understand that fundamentally the parties to a court case must both have an opportunity to defend their interests uh, and the rules of evidence fundamentally serve that purpose. Uh, and one of the most important ones is ensuring that evidence that is presented against you uh, is testable. Uh, yeah, that is it. Minutes. Yes, that is it. I am, I am finished, Chair. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mr. Van Staden. Any questions to Mr. Van Staden? Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Fastaden. Oh, there's a question from Honorable Horn. Um, yes, thank you, Chair. I'm, I'm sorry, I was slow in raising my hand. Uh, uh, good morning, Mr. Fastaden. I would want to um, just get your view, and I've taken note of your arguments, I think, uh, around the, the uh, uh, specific, specific Law Evidence Amendment Act of 1980. 88, but nonetheless, I would, would want to test your view on the statement that a, a legislative provision to, to allow for the introduction into evidence of, of hearsay evidence, uh, that that would not necessarily change the, the ultimate way with which a court is to deal with hearsay evidence. So you also in your in your presentation uh, referred to the probative value of evidence, um, and I want to to say that that I foresee the the counter argument to your argument being that the fact that yes, evidence in itself is permitted into uh -huh. evidence does not necessarily mean that a court would be forced to to uh, give undue weight or place undue reliance on, on ESA evidence and that the ordinary rules that would apply to determine the probative value of such ESA evidence in any event is, un is left untouched through these provisions. But I would like to hear your view on, on such a statement. Thanks. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable Horn. Uh, Mr. Van Staden. Uh, thank you. Yes, uh, I believe, Honorable Orn, you're, you're basically correct there. Uh, clause 22 3 of the bill, I believe, does uh, explicitly say that the court uh, must decide when such evidence has been presented what level of weight to attach to that evidence. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's actually quite uh, probable in, in South Africa's legal tradition that uh, uh, hearsay evidence will be considered with uh, somewhat less weight. Uh, so that's, that's foreseeable. Uh, what, what we're concerned about is simply that the, the, the formula stated in the Law of Evidence Amendment uh, Act has not been reproduced here. In fact, uh, uh, the, the land court bill is quite generous in that it simply allows courts to admit, uh, this court, to admit, admit hearsay evidence, which, uh, which takes quite a bit of the guidance that the uh, 8, 1988 Act provides. It takes that away. Um, 
of course, uh, our judges are of the highest integrity, and it is quite likely that early on in this court's uh, uh, functioning, it will set precedent where it will attach less weight to hearsay evidence. But of course, that is not guaranteed. Uh, uh, what what Sokolikha is asking for at the very minimum is that uh, it should be somewhat guaranteed uh, uh, in a manner of speaking that hearsay evidence must be considered uh, with, with, with less weight than other evidence. I'm, I'm not too concerned. I don't think this court is necessarily going to lead to the total destruction of, of private property rights. Uh, that is unlikely. Uh, but as we sit here in the legislative process uh, where we can make uh, uh, inadequate provisions better uh, without uh, making, making the, the act too burdensome, uh, I think we can take that opportunity. But of course, I, I do agree with you, Honorable Horn, that that uh, we we do have enough legal principles to 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 safeguard us against uh, a reckless admittance of hearsay evidence. I just think we we can do a little bit more to to guarantee that going forward. Thank you very much. Any other question or questions? None. Thank you very much, Mr. Van Student. Thank you for the presentation. Uh, rest assured that uh, the issues you, you, you have raised, we will come back to them uh, either during responses or during uh, uh, deliberations as the committee as we will be doing close by close and looking at the bill close by close. So we will come back to some of the issues you have raised. But thank you very much for making yourself available to make the presentation. Thank you, Chair. Thank you very much. There is somebody that I forgot to recognize who is a very important member, uh, Mr. Dupris. Uh, welcome, Mr. Dupris. Uh, you provide a very valuable support. So it's always important to give you a special mentioning. And to members of your team, I, I know that you are working with a very able team. Uh, we are welcome to this meeting. And hopefully you are listening attentively to respond to some of these issues after we are done with the public hearings. Thank you very much. Um, thank you, Mr. Van Staden, and to your organization. Uh, can we go to the Institute of Race Relations? Dr. Jeffrey? Chairperson, uh, it looks like Dr. Jeffrey has not yet joined us. Can you take uh, the Legal Resources Center? Is the Legal Resources Center part of the meeting? Yes, they are. Jeff. They are. No, that's fine. So let's have the Legal Resources Center. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you so much, Chair. Uh, my name is Cecile van Skolkweg from the Legal Resources Center. I just want to check if it would be possible for us to share our uh, slides that we have sent out or if we should share it ourselves. Uh, can you assist Mr. Romano? Chairperson, I've given them permission to share it. 
Okay. Thank you so much. So, Ms. Kranskalvik, you have 20 minutes. Thank you, Chair. We're just um, making sure that we can... Yes, we can see the slides. Perfect. Thank you so much. Um, Chair, thank you for um, allowing us the opportunity to make submissions. Um, I will be sharing the submissions with my uh, colleague, Ekta Diyashant. Um, and I would also just like to acknowledge that the submissions that the LLC is making in this regard is made on behalf of both ourselves, as well as the Association for Rural Advancement um, and Trina Mbokodo, um, um, which represents rural women um, in the KwaZulu-Natal. Um, the Legal Resources Centre, um, as many of you will know, has a long history of litigation within the land space um, and advocacy. Um, and submissions within the land space. Um, the Association for Rural Advancement um, is, of course, a leading land rights nonprofit organization in KwaZulu Natal that has been involved in a lot of litigation in relation to, to land um, issues. Um, Chair, um, we will start off by making some general comments um, about the bill, um, and we will then move on to specific comments on specific clauses in relation to the bill. Um, as a point of departure, I think the Legal Resources Centre, as well as our partners, welcomes the bill um, and specifically the permanency of a land court. Um, the court, as was, as was envisioned in Section 22 of the Restitution Act, was, of course, never envisioned to be a permanent court. But we think that as time has passed, the need for um, the court to become a permanent court has obviously increased um, significantly. Um, we think that it is good that there will be permanent judges um, that will have expertise and specifically um, resources that are allocated to, to, the, land, um, to the land court. Um, having said that, um, we would like to make a few general comments about what the bill proposes to achieve. Um, it seems that um, the bill envisions to give effect to Section 25 of the Constitution and specifically to accelerate, accelerate land reform. Um, we think that as, a, as an objective, there is possibility that this could be achieved, but there are a great many obstacles that stand in the way of an accelerated land reform process that has very little to do necessarily with the court and that needs to be addressed in order for the court to be a successful institution. Um, the first of that, of course, is the failure of supporting structures um, and supporting government structures to fulfill its duties in terms of existing land legislation on the one hand and the legislature's failure to enable legislation for redistribution and land rights adjudication and administration on the other hand. Um, so the first one I would like to talk about is the causes um, specifically in relation to the institutions. Um, the Legal Resources Centre, as well as our partners, have been involved in multiple pieces of litigation with the Commission on the Restitution of Land Rights. Um, that has been very, very frustrating um, and has been very difficult um, to, to litigate. We have found that in these instances, the court has been of immense help and assistance in trying to make sure that cases move through the system quicker. Um, but the Commission, unfortunately, um, is often under-resourced, ineffective, and marred by corruption. Um, the inefficiency of the commission is something that needs to be addressed in order for the court, in this case, to be successful. Um, so the acceleration of land reform with a focus on uh, focusing specifically only on the court 
um, can only happen, of course, if the commission is properly capacitated and if it does the work that it is supposed to be doing. We have had similar um, experiences, of course, with the Department of Agriculture, Land Reform and Rural Development. Um, if one, for example, considers the Malasi case, um, which deals with the appointment of a special master to adjudicate um, the labor tenant claims, um, the reality is that that department often is not effective. It doesn't do the work that it is supposed to do. Um, and specifically, for example, in the Malasi case, the court was very clear that the failures by the minister to adjudicate these claims was the sole reason why those claims were delayed and why they hadn't properly moved um, in, this, in, the, in the fashion that they should have moved or moved at all, in fact. Um, we have experienced these sort of institutions that are supposed to support the work of the court as being incredibly, incredibly um, cumbersome, slow and frustrating. And we submit that the court will only be as effective as the system within which it functions and that supports its work. Um, and if these institutions are not reformed, the land court will not be effective in achieving its goal of accelerating the land reform process. Um, on the second leg, we would also like to talk a bit about the lack of administration of a land administration and adjudication system. Um, the, this is not necessarily something that can be addressed by this specific bill, but it is important to understand that if we are seeking to accelerate land reform, and if, we are, if this is the aim that the bill is trying to achieve, that it is absolutely necessary that the rights, for example, of the holders of off-register rights, so those rights that are not necessarily registered with the deeds office, um, for example, rights over communal land, um, rights that are associated with um, community trusts, um, communal property associations, um, and informal settlement rights, that those rights must in some way be captured um, to be able to form part of the land, uh, land adjudication process. There's currently no system for land adjudication and registration of rights of, for example, members of communal structures or informal settlements. And this we, we suggest would probably be one of the greatest challenges to accelerating um, land reform and addressing the constitutional obligations in terms of section 26.5, uh, 25.6 of the security um, to, to ensure security of tenure. Um, the land court bill, of course, doesn't address this issue. And we submit that it probably couldn't, that this is something that needs to be addressed by the legislature in order to make sure that land reform can be accelerated. Um, and we submit that in order for this bill to be successful and to achieve that goal, it's necessary that these other pieces of legislation and the legislature look into those other objectives. It's also important that we acknowledge the role of corruption. A lot has been spoken about that and a lot has been written about that, but it is important to understand that many of the land reform processes are unfortunately um, delayed because of uh, corrupt institutions and the aspects associated with that. Um, just a general comment in terms of the jurisdiction of the bill, which has been touched on by the member from Cusata as well. Um, the, we submit that the, the bill seems to suggest that it will be looking at sort of all three of the spheres of land reform. So looking at um, 
redistribution, restitution, and tenure security. Um, but unfortunately, um, it doesn't seem to carry through if one looks at the preamble and then what is addressed in the bill itself. So the preamble uh, refers to land reform it's an in its entirety, but then seems to only deal with certain aspects of redistribution. Um, but when it identifies, for example, the legislation that deals with redistribution, it leaves out a lot of the very important legislation. So, for example, the State Land Disposal um, Act or the Land Titles um, Adjustment Act, which aren't mentioned at all. Um, it also seems to omit completely tenure security, which is, of course, one of the legs of land reform in terms of um, Section 25.6 of the Constitution um, that needs to be included um, it is completely omitted from the bill as it currently stands, and that has to be addressed if land reform as a whole is going to be addressed. Um, it also seems to, for the most part, the bill seems to deal only with restitution. So it sort of has this ideal at the start of dealing with land reform as a whole. It looks at redistribution, and then it, it seems that the most of the clauses in the bill actually ends up dealing only with restitution. Um, so, for example, if one considers, um, you know, clause one, um, if you look at the permissible evidence in clause 22.2 of the, of the act of, of the bill, and if you look at the orders that a court can grant in terms of 28, um, they only seem to refer to, to restitution. Um, this is this needs to be redrafted. There needs to be um, provision made for the other two legs of land reform. Um, and it's also important that the bill recognizes that there a lot of the ongoing disposition of land and rights in land also result as uh, occurs as a result of a, a range of other legislative and regulatory mechanisms. Um, so, for example, there is mining legislation, um, infrastructure development legislation, planning legislation, traditional governance and environmental management legislation that needs to be included in the land um, court bill in order to deal with land reform as a whole, because very often these pieces of legislation are not included um, and are not seen as issues that contribute to disposition of land, but are in fact pieces of legislation that do contribute to disposition of land. Just um, as a uh, sort of a final general comment, um, we note that the Department of Justice and Correctional Services has is of the opinion that the bill should be dealt with in terms of section 25, uh, section 75 of the constitution, which is a bill that does not affect the provinces. Uh, we submit that this bill and its implementation may actually have an impact on the provinces and that it should be sent um, to the National Council of Provinces for consideration. Um, if you look at section seven of the memorandum of the objectives of the bill, it specifically states that it would affect the customary law or customs of traditional communities, and therefore it should be referred to the National House of Traditional Leaders. Um, if one considers the judgment in uh, Tonguhane uh, versus Minister, National Minister for Agriculture and Land Affairs, which dealt with the Communal Land Rights Act, um, that act was enacted in terms of Section 20, 75 of the Constitution, and the Constitutional Court ultimately found that because um, the bill may affect provinces, um, the provinces needed to, to, to give comment on it. That, that bill, Clara, specifically dealt with indigenous law and traditional leadership. And that was the point on which the court found it needed to be referred to the provinces as those are issues that do fall within the competency of the provinces 
um, whether that is directly or indirectly, the provinces deal with uh, the with with traditional leadership, with issues around communal land rights, um, and therefore they have to have their have to have, have input. We submit that the this bill is similar to that um, to to Clara, and therefore it needs to be referred to the National Council of Provinces for consideration. Um, I would like to hand over then to my colleague, um, who will be looking at specific clauses in the bill. You have nine minutes. Nine minutes. Okay, thank you, Chair. Good morning. Um, thank you to my colleague, Cecile. Um, I will deal with specific comments, clauses on the bill. Our written submissions are a bit more extensive on our comments, um, but these are the most significant comments. Um, next slide, please, Cecile. The first clause we'd like to comment on is the appointment of judges in the bill. Um, we welcome that there are permanent judges which will be appointed to the land court, which specialize in land issues. But we do have a um, take issue with clause eight, um, four, which says that judges must be judges of the high court. Um, this could be restrictive as there could be other suitable practitioners with experience in land rights matters. And also if it were to be limited to high court judges, it could be difficult to find current judges that have the requisite experience in land matters. Next slide, please. The next clause is clause 12, which deals with the appointment of assessors. Um, so we welcome the appointment of assessors, but we um, are worried that the bill does not deal with the expertise required of the assessors. Um, assessors must have expertise or experience related to the claim that they are called to adjudicate. Um, in the land claims court, we have seen that assessors are usually just attorneys or people with a legal background, and their assistance provided to the court is limited. Um, so we submit that the bill should say that the court should have assessors with specialist knowledge in the claim that they're going to be involved in. Um, the next clause is clause 13, which deals with the institution of proceedings brought, at, brought to the court. Um, clause 13.3 says that the registrar refers matters to the JP. The judge president must decide whether, whether to hear the matter at the court or to refer it to mediation or arbitration. Although there are certain factors listed um, which must be taken into account to consider whether to refer to mediation or arbitration. Um, there should be certain categories, we think, which are automatically referred to mediation um, so that matters are dealt with more expeditiously, similar to the process in the CCMA. Um, some examples could include eviction in terms um, evictions of labor tenants and claims made by labor tenants in terms of the Labor Tenants Act, evictions in terms of ESTA, claims in terms of the Restitution Act, um, where the Restitution Act um, specifically allows for the president to direct that certain matters are, are referred to mediation. Um, these are when there are two or more competing claims, where there are competing groups within a claimant community, or where the owner of, a land, of the land is opposed to the claim. Um, and we also say that the process for instituting cases must be as simple as possible, and the registrar should assist parties to institute matters in a language that is accessible to that community. Next slide. The next clause we dealt with is 14, which deals with the rules. Um, this clause is a bit confusing. It says that the Superior Courts Act and uniform high court rules will apply with changes required by the context of the land court. This is a bit vague and unclear um, how it will be changed to allow it to take into account the context. And it also doesn't allow the land court to make its own rules, which is different to the Restitution Act, which allows the, uh, the land claims commission, the land claims courts are to make their rules. Um, and these rules have been applied and were carefully drafted to deal with land matters. 
Um, it requires processes to be in plain language, simple to understand, and designed to allow the claimants to navigate the court process easily. Um, so we submit that these rules should be retained in this bill. Next slide. Clause 16 deals with legal representation. So if a party can, can't pay for legal representation, the matter is referred to legal aid if a substantial injustice would, would otherwise incur. So it's a bit vague on how to determine substantial injustice and who determines that there would be a substantial injustice or whether the ordinary um, criteria for legal aid is applied. Taking into account that LASA is often overburdened burdened and under-resourced, and it takes a very long time for them to allocate the case, um, as we have referred in, to, uh, in our submissions in Makanda. Um, it is also unclear how this would interact with the land rights management facility, where cases have been referred to private attorneys. And evidence shows that although this works where some private attorneys do have expertise in land rights matters, some attorneys have abused the process and continued it while taking um, fees from the commission. Next slide. Clause 18 deals with judgment by default and the rules of service. Um, the bill provides that ordinary service is relied upon to provide service before default judgment can be granted. But we think that this is not enough. Where a party is a community or persons who may not be easily ascertainable, there must be greater measures taken to ensure that community members are aware of the legal proceedings. Um, some examples include they could be notices placed at communal areas, loud hailers, notifications in communities, or community meetings called. Next slide. Clause 22 deals with evidence, um, and I think our opinion would differ from my colleague who spoke earlier on um, regarding hearsay evidence. Clause 22 allows for oral evidence and deals with hearsay, but it seems that it only deals with hearsay to the extent um, that it applies in restitution cases. We think this should be extended to all cases before the court, and obviously the, the judge, the legal officer, would apply their mind on, on the weight to attribute to hearsay evidence. Um, this is important because oral history in a lot of these of communities that the land court bill would be applicable to is in a form of hearsay evidence. They rely on the knowledge of elders, and this information is not necessarily recorded. So the court should automatically have the the ability to allow for hearsay evidence in all matters um, at the inception of it. Our next submission is on clause 31, which allows for mediation. We welcome the, the provisions for mediation and arbitration. We think there are multiple benefits to mediation, which has been proven, um, but there must be some factors taken into account when deciding on appointing mediators, um, and it must be used when appropriate. Um, it shows that mediation is effective where both parties have similar bargaining power, so that must be taken into account when referring a matter to mediation. The mediator must have knowledge and skills in the context of land disputes. They must be proficient in the language which is spoken by the parties, and they must understand the history of land dispossession in South Africa or the particular community where the mediation is occurring. Next slide. Um, the court must also consider settling a rights dispute before ordering mediation of the remaining issues. For example, the court can determine, um, make a determination relating to the authority of a chief to act on behalf of the community before matter is referred to mediation, as mediation might not be the best um, platform to resolve those sorts of issues. Um, mediation can also be a costly process. So um, the court must ensure that sorry, Parliament must ensure that this aspect of the bill is effectively costed and money must be set aside for the purpose of mediation and for compensating competent mediators. 
Um, the bill also says that the JP has the sole discretion to decide to refer a matter to mediation. We submit that a reg the registrar should be able to refer parties to mediation if they voluntarily choose this process. We also think there should be set timeframes within the bill itself um, for, for timeframes through which under which mediation must be completed in order to deal with matters expeditiously and not just going on in mediation perpetually. Um, the next clause we dealt with is clause 32, which is arbitration. And the comments in arbitration is similar to our comments made under mediation, um, except that we think that there should be a specific panel of arbitrators as mm -hmm. is provided for under the Labor Tenants Act and funds allocated for this purpose. Um, arbitrators must be given training on land rights and dispute resolution. Um, so we think that there is an error with clause 37.7, which is a bit vague. It says that um, it suggests that arbitrations are binding only if a writ is issued, which is not the case. So we think that reference to the writ should be removed. Um, and we also submit that arbitration awards should be subject to automatic review proceedings in the land court so that there is a measure of control over the process and can step in if there is any, any um, um, incorrect proceedings happening at arbitration proceedings. Next. Um, so, Chair, our last submission is on Clause 53 of the bill, which deals with regulations. Um, Clause 53.2 says that the minister can devise regulations to regulate mediation and arbitration. And in the regulations, um, the minister can determine the appointment, the powers and functions of the mediator or the mediation process. We submit that this is quite, um, it's a very significant um, provision um, and opportunity that mediation be allowed in land court matters and the significance of it um, should be incorporated due to the significance, the powers should be stipulated in the bill itself and not left to regulations. Um, the regulations will also determine the extent to which legal aid will be provided to parties in mediation and arbitration. Um, we think that the legal representation requirements in clause 16, um, last point, okay. Or I can Just give that it should one, be, I can yes. give you one minute to round up. Thank you. Just 30 seconds. Okay. Um, last point, that legal representation should extend to arbitration proceedings because arbitration disputes can be determined with finality um, and that legal aid provisions should also apply to arbitrations. Thank you, Chair. Thank you very much. Uh, legal Resources Center. Uh, are there any questions, members? Honorable Juan. Thank you, Chair, and good morning to the presenters, Chair. Um, I have a few questions. Uh, paragraph 31 of the presentation of the slideshow uh, contains a suggestion that the bill must be amended to allow for referral by the court in the case of corruption to the NPA. Uh, so I would want the presenters to maybe unpack that a bit further, specifically in light of the, the important principle of the separation of powers, and would want to suggest that that would not be a constitutional avenue available to, to Parliament, but, but I would like to hear from them whether they have alternative proposals then in order to effectively... Uh, the ramp up the way we deal as a country with, with corruption and alleged corruption. 
Uh, then, Chair, in respect of the, the comments around tagging that were, was made in the written presentation as well, I would, would uh, want to hear from the presenters what they believe would be the, let's say, the end result if, if we are to accept that tagging is, uh, needs to be in terms of Section 76 of the Constitution. And in the event that we as Parliament fail to, to address that issue, so I would like to hear their views as to what would be the, the ultimate uh, result or consequence of such a decision. And then, Jay, in respect of uh, their input regarding assessors, I would want their comment, uh, like to invite their comment on the statement that they, they advocate and argue for assessors with specific knowledge, specifically of, let's say, uh, geographical and, and cultural history and context be involved in, in uh, matters. But I would want to ask them to react to a statement to the effect that, oh, as we speak, social sciences and social scientists well, globally, but specifically also in this country, very rarely find themselves in a position where they can be seen as, as neutral, impartial, and impartial, or, or really truly objective as required by the law. So the presenters are critical of the fact that by and large, assessors ordinarily turn out to be uh, lawyers of, by training, but wouldn't they agree that the difficulty in following the avenue they propose would be that by way of the way social science, science in the, uh, operates as a, as a science, that the, it is very difficult to find social scientists who, who don't come to proceedings with, with an inherent bias, which will be their point of departure. Um, I also make this 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 or make this comment and ask their reaction, Chair, in in light of their comment that media haters should be truly independent. So I want to ask why why it would seem that they are, have a differing view regarding assessors. Um, and then lastly, Chair, in respect of clause thirty four of their original presentation, they make the case as has some others that. Indeed, we, we must go for a land court of appeal and make the, 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 the case that this would allow for, for an appeal court with specific expertise. Um, but I want to make the statement that, that I, I think the, the counter argument to this or the inherent danger to this argument is that this would cause us to... to by, in a, in a subtle way, create a, a subsection of our law, which, which would, I don't know whether we can call it land law, law in relation to land, land use, tenure, redistribution, restitution, etc. cetera, uh, whilst I believe there would be more benefit for, for us to, to see this not as a subsection of the law, but part of our of one legal system and one one uh, 
yeah, system of law in, in this country. So, for example, currently we have the La Labour Court of Appeal. And I think there's a clear distinction to be drawn in the sense that, that we have a very clear, uh, by way of, I don't want to say evolution, but maybe the, the way labor relations in this country has unfolded with setting up the CCMA, specific dedicated laws, specific provisions um, in respect of bargaining and negotiations, it would make sense to have this, this Labor Court of Appeal. But I wouldn't want to venture the opinion that to, to, to in, on the one hand, see to it that our, our disputes regarding land and land use uh, are looked at by our Supreme Court of Appeal and then ultimately our Constitutional Court would ultimately enrich not only the, 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 the body of law, but would also give us the benefit that the demands for fairness are addressed um, in an ultimate way by involving both of, of our two highest courts in dealing with these matters rather than, than reserving it for, for a, a bench that ultimately a, the Court of Appeal might be fed from the, the Court of First Instance, which is not, in my view, an ideal situation. But I would like their comments. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Honorable Gunnar Spredenbach. Thank you, Chair, and good morning to everybody. Um, I have two questions. One is um, relates to Advocate Horn's, uh, Honourable Horn's question. Um, referrals to the NPA by the court. I'm assuming that, that the intention is that they get referred for consideration and uh, possibly investigation by the police and the NPA and not an instruction to prosecute. If I could just clear that up. And then... Um, all the extra work that this will no doubt cause the Legal Aid Board of South Africa um, who are cash-strapped and under-resourced. Uh, is there a suggestion as to how we should deal with that issue uh, if they're going to be getting so much extra work? How, how, are we, how do they propose we deal with the resourcing of the Legal Aid South Africa? Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, two questions on my side. The first one, you have identified the Department of Agriculture and Land Reform as one of the causes of delays uh, in the land restitution. And also the commission, you have identified uh, issues relating to corruption. The issue is whether you have tried to raise these matters with the portfolio committee responsible that is a portfolio committee for land reform. That is the first issue. Then the second issue is whether you, you think that there would be enough caseload to justify uh, having an appeal, a division, uh, other than the Supreme Court of Appeal, that um, having that uh, uh, appeal division, will there be enough caseload 
to justify that one? And um, have you done any research to 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 ensure that uh, there are enough cases that can sustain a, a separate uh, appeal court? Over to you. Sorry, I was on mute. Uh, thank you so much, Chair. Um, I will start by attempting to answer some of these questions, and then my colleague will um, will come in where, where necessary. Um, to uh, speak to Member Horn's questions, um, the referral of the matters um, by, the, by the court to the MPA. Um, I think um, Member Breitenbach was completely correct when she said that we are not suggesting that the court instructs the MPA to necessarily, um, you know, prosecute matters or look into specific matters. We are simply saying that there should be some kind of power to refer it for consideration. Um, and this is not uncommon. Um, it happens all the time in cases where matters, for example, are, are, are bought or court order and say, you know, um, this order and judgment must be referred to the president or this order and judgment must be given to, um, for example, the master's office. You know, this is not an, it wouldn't be an completely unknown power that courts can exercise. And it certainly would not violate in that instance, the separation of powers, because it would just be for consideration and not as an instruction. Um, in terms of the tagging question, um, sorry, I just want to, just with the previous question, um, the, the allegations of, of corruption and how, how we suggest that be dealt with. Um, I mean, I think if we if we all knew how that would needed to be dealt with, it would have been dealt with um, already. I think that um, there are a lot of um, problems with accountability within these various institutions, um, and that needs to be addressed. Um, there needs to be much more sort of you know effort on the side of the MPA when matters are referred to them or when cases are open for them to consider this and I think that there needs to be you know work coming from government side to make sure that the kind of internal procedures that happen within the commission and within the department are strengthened to make sure that corruption doesn't happen. Um, we know that unfortunately and courts refer to this very often, it happens and then it comes out within the context of court cases, that there are issues with corruption, that there are issues that have arisen. We've seen that in some of our own cases um, and the courts can, can only raise that, um, but it is very difficult for the courts to necessarily be the ones to step in to, to address that unless the matters are brought before the court um, in a criminal kind of consideration. In terms of the tagging question, um, the, the ultimate, I mean, I think that the Tongahani case gives us a very good indication of what would happen if, um, if for example, the, the, if the portfolio committee or the parliament is wrong on the question of tagging, um, because, of course, in that case, the constitutional court uh, set aside the entire bill because it hadn't been tagged correctly and it hadn't been sent to the uh, National Council of Provinces. So that would be the result if it were to be found that it should have been referred to the, the National um, Council of, of Provinces. Um, just to, to answer that question. In terms of the question of assessors, um, the reason why we, why we say that they should have some kind of knowledge of the geography, some kind of knowledge of language, some kind of knowledge associated with the communities um, is not necessarily because you know, they have to be tainted or anything. We, we obviously want them to be objective. We have just seen that in cases where mediation has occurred, 
um, or arbitration has occurred, um, it's very important for the mediator or the person to un- or, the, or the arbitrator to sort of have a basic understanding of the communities within which these situations or, or the, these claims arise or the issues arise. Um, the reality is that South Africa's land issues are very, very complex. Um, and when these issues are discussed, it is very it's, it's good for the person who's mediating it to be able to have an understanding, for example, of the language that people are speaking. It makes the people who are participating, the different communities, the different parties who are speaking um, and participating in the mediation um, much more comfortable and able to express themselves when, for example, they are speaking their own language. Um, and when the person who is um, mediating the process understands the dynamics within the community and the history within those communities. Um, I think that the notion that somebody could come, even as judges or as anybody in this world, can come to a situation with having absolutely no sort of background or understanding or bias or influence of any nature is is a little bit preposterous. Um, We are all influenced by the experiences that we have, and so are judges. Um, So nobody comes to these kinds of situations completely impartial as it is. Um, And I think that the social sciences, what it does is it can assist people in being able to deal with whatever bias or impartiality they have and understanding different opinions, different concepts that are different from their own experiences. Um, So, yes, we we acknowledge that people come to situations with some kind of bias, but that is unavoidable um, and it it needs to be dealt with within the circumstances. And we think that in the context of these land issues, if a person has a better understanding of the context that they are working within, um, it does assist um, with mediation and with arbitration. Um, Then in terms of... um, the appeals court, um, and maybe I will address, Chair, your question about the caseload um, that's necessary for the appeals court and then the question of um, the specific expertise and whether it's necessary for the Supreme Court to consider these, these cases. Um, we submit that if the jurisdiction of the court is expanded, um, as we proposed um, in our submissions, that there certainly would be um, some, they, they would be a need for an appeals court and they want, there would be uh, enough cases to be able to satisfy the need for an, for an appeals court. We have not done independent research ourselves, but we know that a lot of our cases do get referred to the Supreme Court of Appeal and ultimately the Constitutional Court, um, and that it would be good if the jurisdiction is indeed then um, expanded for this court to deal with. There is a specific court with specific expertise that are able to deal with those, those um, issues. Um, Mr. Horn, you raised the issue of whether or not, I mean, the, the demands of fairness um, doesn't require of these matters to be sent to the Supreme Court of Appeal and then the Constitutional Court. Um, of course, these matters can be appealed to the Constitutional Court. Um, That is still an avenue that would be available, even if the Labour Appeals Court is in existence. Um, And I would submit that the Labour Appeals Court, uh, sorry, the Land Appeals Court would also be bound by demands of fairness, as would be the Supreme Court of Appeal. Um, Those two institutions, um, you know, whether it is heard by the Land Appeals Court or whether it is heard by the Supreme Court of Appeal, um, they would both be bound by the constitutional provisions of this country by, you know, the demands of fairness. Um, and 
it wouldn't necessarily make the matter more fair to have it sent to the Supreme Court of Appeal as opposed to the Land Appeals Court. Um, and the Land Appeals Court with specific expertise, with specific judges who know and understand land issues within this country could only benefit uh, the resolution of disputes in relation to land issues within South Africa. Um, then in terms of oh, the extra workload with, uh, with legal aid, um, we, we are aware that legal aid, I mean, we, we know that from our experience working with communities and with organizations on ground level, that as it stands, legal aid struggles to meet its obligations towards its members, even without the uh, additional burden of the uh, of the land uh, of these land issues, um, we have, you know, the, the reality is it needs to be capacitated. If if this is if it's the intention that these matters be referred to legal aid, then it has to be capacitated. And I think that there is a sometimes a misunderstanding about how difficult and how time consuming and how resource intensive land issues can be and, and working on land issues can be. Um, for example, the Legal Resources Center has been involved in the case with the Fisher River Sun, the Mazzazzini case and Prudic, of the Pruda community um, for nearly 12 years. The amount of resources, time and effort that has gone into that matter is enormous. Um, so if, if, this, if it is the, the intention of the legislature to refer this to legal aid and for them to deal with these matters, they must know and understand that, that it will have to come with an enormous amount of capacity um, that, that needs to be referred to them. Um, the, I mean, the um, land rights management facility as it stands now, we think has its, you know, there's, there's things about it that is good. It works in some instances. We, have, we ourselves have been appointed by them to act on behalf of certain communities that has been very successful. Um, that, we, you know, there are issues with it. It needs to be restructured. There needs to be looked at uh, specifically who sits on the panel and whether or not there are issues around corruption. Um, but whether it is funded through the land rights management facility or whether it's funded through legal aid, it needs to be funded if it is the intention that these issues be addressed um, and, and that people have a right to legal representation that they can then obtain through the state. Um, then just Chair, on your last question or your question about the department um, and the commission and the delays and the corruption and whether we have tried to raise it with the portfolio committee of, of land reform. Um, these issues have been raised there, but they've also been raised in court cases. Um, if one considers, for example, the judgment in Lamosa, um, which specifically dealt with the failure of the commission to uh, adjudicate the old land claims before instituting the or you know, making provision for new land claims to be instituted, the court in that case specifically addressed the fact that the commission has, there has been numerous delays, there have been numerous issues in this regard. In, for example, the judgment on the Pruda community, the Mazzazzini case, if one has, has reference to what the judges say in that case, they specifically refer to the fact that the delays and the issues in that case had been mostly, uh, you know, ascribed to the commission. Um, that they had delayed on multiple occasions, haven't investigated the claims properly, the referral reports were not of a good quality. I mean, the court, you know, these issues are all raised within courts um, and the, 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 the department and the commission are parties to these proceedings. They see what happens there. They get told by the court what happens there. So it is certainly not a, a, a case that these issues haven't been raised. Everyone seems to be aware of them. 
Um, I just want to check if my colleague wants to come in and add anything. Um, thanks, Cecile. I just have two points I to add to. We are left with uh, eight minutes uh, to to round up on the Legal Resources Center. Sure, thank you, Chair. Just two quick points to add to what my colleague has said. Um, just on the, the land um, Court of Appeal and whether it is necessary, although we haven't done independent research, the high-level panel report, which was released in 2017, stated that it would take 709 years for the commission um, to catch up on all the outstanding land claims. I think that in itself shows us that there is a need for specialist courts to expe um, expedite these issues. Um, and then the second point is on LASA. Um, my colleague has also already spoken to the capacity that needs to be put into LASA specifically for these issues. And we are glad to hear that that has been taking place. Um, and the second point is on accountability for unscrupulous attorneys, which have been appointed by the Land Rights um, Management Facility, where they have wasted public funds. This money needs to be recovered and deviated back to, to attorneys or legal aid who will actually use those funds for proper purposes. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Honorable Swart. Okay, thank you so much. I know there's problems with connection on my side, so please tell me if you can't hear me. Good morning to my colleagues and my apologies for being late. Mm -hmm. I just quickly wanted to refer to the high-level panel report, which the presenter has just referred to, and there's very interesting chapters on land reform there, and I'm grateful that they've referred to that. So one issue I might have missed um, and that relates to the Land Court of Appeal, which is set up in terms of Section 34, and which was referred to during the presentation and the questions around it. Is it correct that the Land Court of Appeal will then take over the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court of Appeal? And if that is so, does that not require a constitutional amendment of Section 168 of the Constitution, which states specifically the jurisdiction of the SEA for all matters of appeal except in respect of labor or competition matters. Chair, I'm, I'm, I might have missed something in the presentations, but I'd like some clarity on that or some reflection on that issue. Thank you, Chair. Thank you very much. Can you respond to that question uh, within the next five minutes? We have five minutes left. Okay, thank, thank you, Chair. Um, Chair, um, in terms of the, the question, I'm at, sorry, just maybe I'll just start off by saying I think that we think that like the, the high level panel report, um, it's very, you know, there's a lot of good stuff that came out of that, that needs to be considered and, um, you know, that specifically by this portfolio committee as well when when trying to redraft the bill um, and not enough I think has been made out of the high level panel report and its recommendations. Um, in terms of the land court of appeal, um, it is our understanding, and I um, I might I stand to be corrected, but it's our understanding that the that this would indeed uh, replace the the jurisdiction of the of the Supreme Court of Appeal um, because and it would be sort of on a similar level as we would see the the Labour Appeals Court um, if that is indeed the case um, and that is the intention as we read it in the legislation um, then the Honourable Mr Swartz is correct that it would probably require um, an amendment to the Constitution to make provision for that um, in in the Constitution. Um, uh, 
if that's if that is what how the yeah how how the legislature intended it it is our reading of it so um yeah okay no thank you very much thank you very much uh, for the presentation uh, you have raised the uh, important issues that we would need to apply ourselves to them especially the issue of the tagging um, I think it would be important for Mr. Dupreeze to, to come back to us as quickly as he can as to, as to what is going to be the response of the department to the taking issue. Because if it is not properly managed, it can be fatal to the whole process, uh, to the whole legislative process. So I think it would be important for, for the department to to respond to that issue as soon as it is practically possible. I'm not saying now, but go and apply yourselves to that issue and urgently come back to us. Thank you very much. I am informed. Thank you very much, Legal Resources Center. Thank I you. hope that you are going to submit your written um, uh, presentations to Mr. Dupris. Uh, through the committee secretary. We will do so. I'm Thank sure. you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Jeffrey. Thank you. I am here and I hope that you can hear me. Okay, yes, we can hear you. Can you flight your slides? I don't have slides. I simply have a document which I would like to go through and which I would be happy to make available to the committee afterwards. No, that's fine. You have 20 minutes. Um, so which means you must be done by 5 to 11. Thank you, Chair. This presentation is being made on behalf of the South African Institute of Race Relations or the IRR, which is a nonprofit organization that was formed a long time ago in 1929 to oppose racial discrimination and promote racial goodwill. And its current objects are to promote democracy, human rights, development and reconciliation. Given time constraints, I can't deal with all the points that were raised by the IRR in its full written submission. So I plan to highlight only some of the most disturbing clauses while appealing to the committee to have regard to all the other points that were raised by the IRR in its full submission. If we start with the purpose of the new land court, the memorandum on the objects of the bill says that the new land court will replace the current land claims court. It will be a specialist court mandated, mandated to deal with all land related matters as regulated by various acts of parliament. And the nine acts already listed in the bill include those dealing with restitution, labor tenants, and the provision, prevention of illegal evictions. The expropriation bill of 2020, which still has to be adopted by parliament, is not yet listed. However, there seems no doubt to me that one of the core purposes of the land court bill is to facilitate the provision of null or otherwise inadequate compensation under the expropriation bill once that is enacted. The Land Court Bill will achieve this by asking the jurisdiction of the ordinary courts to decide on the just and equitable compensation that Section 25 of the Constitution guarantees. 
Instead, the new land court will be given exclusive jurisdiction over decisions on compensation, but will lack a necessary independence and impartiality. This puts the bill in breach of the Constitution, which recognizes the supremacy of the rule of law as one of its founding values. The rule of law has many facets, but one of its core requirements is that disputes must be decided by the ordinary courts of the land, not tribunals picked by the government to do its bidding. To comply with the rule of law, both judges and other decision makers, particularly assessors under this bill, must be both independent and impartial. They must have a clear capacity to decide the disputes before them with an open mind and solely on the merits of each case. If we look more at the role of assessors, according to section 12, not more than two assessors may be appointed to deal with any matter together with a single land court judge who will normally preside. These assessors must be appointed in the prescribed manner as set out in the minister's regulations, but the bill is silent as to the qualifications they must have and on what steps will be taken to ensure that only independent and impartial people are brought in as assessors. This matters a great deal because where two assessors are appointed, they will have the power to overrule the presiding judge on all questions of fact. Questions of law will need to be decided by the judge who will also rule on, many, on whether any given question is one of fact or one of law. But in very many instances, the disputes before the court will turn primarily on questions of fact, which inadequately qualified and potentially partisan assessors will be empowered to decide. Decisions on the amount of compensation payable on expropriation are likely to be tagged as questions of fact to be decided by these assessors. Whether the criteria for the payment of null compensation under the expropriation bill have been met, for example, whether owners have abandoned their buildings by failing to exercise control over them, will most likely also be regarded as questions of fact to be decided in the same way. Yet finding and evaluating facts is a difficult task. It involves sifting through possible falsehoods, weighing up credibility, assessing probabilities, and making deductions. All of this requires a great deal of experience, which assessors are unlikely to have. Hence, the normal role of assessors in court proceedings is to advise judges, not make decisions. Vesting the fact-finding function in assessors lacking independence and impartiality also breaches the rule of law. If we turn to court procedures, according to section 14, the court must generally follow the rules of procedure laid down for all divisions of the High Court. These rules provide for a formal and adversarial system of adjudication, yet section 14 also allows the Land Court to conduct any part of, of its proceedings on an informal or inquisitorial basis. In addition, the court is to follow only those procedural rules that facilitate the expeditious handling of disputes and the minimization of costs. Though unnecessary delays in litigation should be avoided, the adjudication of complex issues requires detailed investigation and minimum standards of fairness. The established rules of procedure have been developed over centuries to help ensure this and are vital to the rule of law. In addition, an inquisitorial system gives the presiding judge the task of actively driving and controlling the search for the truth. In this situation, the judge cannot remain above the fray, and this undermines judicial independence in the eyes of both the parties and the public. If we look now at admissible evidence under Section 22, 
the court may admit evidence, including oral evidence, which it considers relevant and cogent to the matter being heard, whether or not such evidence would be admissible in any other court of law. In addition, and without derogating from the generality of this provision, the court may take account of hearsay evidence regarding, for example, the circumstances surrounding the dispossession of a land right. The court must give such weight to any hearsay or otherwise inadmissible evidence as it deems appropriate. But the general principle in South Africa is that hearsay evidence cannot be admitted because the person providing it has no direct knowledge of whether it is true or not, and its credibility cannot be properly tested through cross-examination. The bill contradicts Section 3 of the Law of Evidence Amendment Act of 1988, which allows the admission of hearsay evidence only in exceptional circumstances and where the court is satisfied that its admission would be in the interests of justice. This, in turn, depends on a range of factors, including its probative value, the extent to which it proves the facts in dispute, the reason its author cannot testify, has she received death threats, for example, and the extent of the prejudice its admission is likely to cause to any party. The bill cuts across these established rules by providing a single new test, whether the hearsay evidence is relevant and cogent, and dispensing with the safeguards in the 1988 Act. Under the bill, the procedural dice are clearly to be loaded against expropriated owners and other rights holders, including successful land claimants from the first window period prior to December 1998, who now face rival restitution claims from many others. This loading of the procedural dice undermines the rule of law. So too does the relevant and cogent test, which is vague and uncertain. Moreover, there are many other rules of evidence that need to be applied, not disregarded. These cautionary principles have likewise been developed over centuries to help winnow out misleading and perhaps false allegations. This helps promote fairness to all parties and to maintain public confidence in the courts. If we turn now to compulsory arbitration, under Section 13, any person wishing to institute proceedings in the land court must inform the registrar, who in turn must refer the matter to the judge president, who will then decide whether the matter is to be heard in the court or whether it should be referred to mediation or arbitration. Arbitration is particularly important because its purpose is to generate a decision binding on all parties. Even if arbitration is not ordered at the outset, the land court may still, under section 32, stay the matter and refer to arbitration at any time prior to judgment. The court will choose the arbitrator, who may be replaced only if all the parties agree on an alternative. Since the state will have the right under section 16 of the bill to intervene as a party in all proceedings before the court, the state will be able to veto any change of arbitrator to a more independent and expert individual. The bill has conflicting provisions on the status of arbitration awards. According to section 32.7, an arbitration award issued by an arbitrator is final and binding and may be enforced as if it were an order of the court. Yet under section 33 of the bill, if a matter is settled out of court by means of an arbitration award, which all the parties accept, the registrar must refer the settlement agreement to the court, which may simply reject that agreement and thereby require that the matter proceed before it instead. The bill thus negates the key purpose of arbitration. 
arbitration is supposed to offer disputing parties the opportunity to obtain a binding decision from an expert whose independence and knowledge they trust. Under the bill, however, the court effectively chooses the arbitrator and can also reject the award on unspecified grounds under Section 33. As an exception to these provisions, Section 32 of the bill allows any party to apply to the court to stop the arbitration process and resume adjudication. But taking such a step could result in an adverse costs order, not only against that party, but also under Section 30 against his legal representative. Become larger rights of appeal under the bill. The bill establishes a land court of appeal, which is, except for the constitutional court, to be the final court of appeal from all judgments on the court on matters within its exclusive jurisdiction. The Supreme Court of Appeal, the SCA, will thus be barred, it seems as is the intention of the bill, from hearing appeals from the court, despite its extensive expertise. The Constitutional Court will still be able to hear appeals, but direct appeals to it, bypassing the Land Court of Appeal, will have to be, and I quote, allowed by national legislation. This wording in the bill gives the government the capacity to exclude any direct appeal to the Constitutional Court in the expropriation bill and in other legislation, and that will extend the time and costs involved in the appeals process. If we turn now to the ramifications of the bill and its overall significance, what is truly unfortunate is that the bill provides no solution to land reform problems. According to Section 2, the purpose of the bill is to promote the ideal of access to land on an equitable basis and to promote land reform as a means of redressing the results of past discrimination and facilitate land justice. The bill seeks to achieve these goals by asking the jurisdiction of the ordinary courts and establishing a specialist land court with the capacity to sidestep the normal rules of evidence, appoint land activists as assessors, give those assessors the power to overrule judges in deciding on questions of fact, and use costs orders to penalize people and their legal representatives who decline to participate in state-controlled arbitration processes. Clearly, the underlying objective is to use the land court to help speed up the redistribution of land from private owners to the state, often by means of expropriation for nil or otherwise inadequate compensation. Erstwhile owners will then be confined to revocable leases or land use licenses that may give them access to land as the bill envisages, but will prevent them from obtaining the ownership rights vital to inclusive growth and expanding prosperity. The bill is based on the false view that major land redistribution of this kind will suffice to provide redress for past discrimination, but it ignores the many reasons why land reform has so signally failed and why a greater volume of land transfers will do little to help the disadvantaged. In December 2007, before the full extent of land reform failures had become apparent, the then Director General of Land Affairs, Tozian Guanya, acknowledged that 50% of land reform projects had collapsed, leaving many of their intended beneficiaries worse off than before. This made it essential, he said, to look beyond the number of hectares transferred and to introduce new targets that reflected jobs created, income earned, and productivity. There was little point in redistributing land and, in his words, ending up with assets that are dying in the hands of the poor. 
the high-level panel of parliament later explored the reasons for land reform failures and concluded that these had little to do with land acquisition costs, as both the expropriation bill and the land court bill assume. According to the panel's November 2017 report, the key constraints on land reform include a lack of capacity and failures of accountability. Other barriers include a refusal to grant ownership to land reform beneficiaries who are given leases rather than title, along with increasing evidence of corruption by officials, the diversion of the land reform budget to elites, and a lack of political will. Since land acquisition costs are not the problem, using the expropriation and land court bills to expropriate land for no or inadequate compensation will not turn land reform from failure to success. We also need to look to the extent of black home and land ownership now. Black home ownership has been growing steadily since 1975, when a 30-year leasehold option for township houses was introduced. This was soon replaced by 99-year leasehold, and then in the 1980s by freehold rights. Today, close on 8.8 .8 million black South Africans own their homes, as do almost 1.2 million so-called colored and Indian people, and roughly 1 million whites. Since 1991, when the National Party government repealed the notorious land acts, black people have also bought an estimated 6 million hectares of rural and urban land in the open market without the intervention of the state. Though private property ownership is still racially skewed, excuse me, black ownership of land, houses, and other assets has you been growing for many years. To accelerate this process, the country needs an annual average growth rate of 5% of GDP, accompanied by an upsurge in investment and employment. Black home ownership also needs to be formalized in many instances through the issuing of proper title deeds, which would help unlock the full economic value of these houses. Instead, however, the land court bill will be used to help strip all South Africans, both black and white, of the ownership rights they already enjoy or could otherwise obtain. The bill will help confine the population to rights of access on land either owned by the state or controlled by it under the rubric of custodianship. Yet these access rights will be revocable and inherently uncertain and far less valuable to people than the individual ownership which already exists and needs to be expanded rather than curtailed. The practical importance of private property rights and limited state control have been evaluated for many years by the Fraser Institute in Canada, a think tank. The Fraser Institute's research shows that the countries which do the best in upholding private property rights and limiting state power are the most free in the economic sense. They are also by far the most prosperous. In 2019, for example, nations in the top quartile for economic freedom had average per capita GDP exceeding $50,000 as compared to under $6,000 for countries in the bottom quartile. In the top quartile, moreover, the average income of the poorest 10% of 
was roughly $14,400, as opposed to $1,500 for the poorest 10% in the bottom quartile. In addition, for countries in the top quartile, only 1% of the population lived in extreme poverty, as compared to 34% in the bottom quartile. The importance of property rights is further confirmed by the experience of both Zimbabwe and Venezuela. In Zimbabwe, the expropriation of farmland has led to economic collapse, pervasive hunger, hyperinflation, a 90% unemployment rate, and the flight of millions of impoverished people. Much the same is true in Venezuela, where GDP has halved in recent years, hunger is widespread, inflation has soared, and millions of people have also been forced to flee. In conclusion then, the Land Court Bill is in breach of the founding values of the Constitution and cannot lawfully be adopted. Its ideological premise that private property rights are the problem and state ownership the solution is also fatally flawed. For both these reasons, the Land Court Bill should be abandoned, not enacted into law. I thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Jeffrey. Jeffrey, you were right on time. Uh, members, any questions to Dr. Anthea uh, Jeffrey? Honorable Horn. Thank you, Chair, and good morning to Dr. Jeffrey. Um, Chair, I would want, um, and specifically in light of, of the concluding comments by Dr. Jeffrey, I would firstly like to ask her whether she could identify the sections in the bill that in her view renders it um, unconstitutional. In addition to that, I would want to in any event ask her reaction to the uh, or her comment to the uh, provisions around arbitration and mediation, as well as the, the uh, ability of the court to take into account, if I recall it correctly, I don't have it open in front of me now, whether a matter should have been referred to or subjected to uh, arbitration and mediation in awarding cost. Um, how, if, if at all that can be uh, balanced with section 34 of our constitution, which, which in simple terms says everyone has the right to have any dispute that can be resolved by the application of law decided by in a hearing before a court. Um, so to me, it would seem that the, the powers around forced mediation and arbitration, as well as the the potential for punitive costs order in the event that that does not materialize, seemingly on the basis of the, the refusal of an involved party to, to embark on that route, that that can possibly be inconsistent with Section 34. Then, Chair, in respect of assessors, it was um, interesting to note that Dr. Jeffrey is of the view that the two assessors could ultimately form an exclusionary majority on the bench in respect of, of disputed facts. 
So I would want to ask her, and I don't know whether she was able to, to listen to other presentations this morning, but we had another uh, presentation which advocated for the, uh, uh, let's say, the, the uh, criteria for assessors to be appointed to include in, in those criteria the specific expertise or knowledge of potential assessors regarding the potential disputed facts that would, would land in front of the court. So I would want to uh, maybe just invite her comment if she is in a position to give it now regarding that proposal. And then lastly, Chair, in respect of specifically the, um, and I don't think unrealistic, I think uh, quite clearly, if one looks at the preamble of this bill, uh, Dr. Jeffrey is quite correct to say that ultimately this bill is to, to operate in tandem with the uh, expropriation legislation or expropriation bill currently before Parliament if adopted into law. Uh, I would want to invite her comment on the, the provisions if there are any, around the ability of the, the land court, proposed land court, to deal with a review of the decision of an expropriating authority to expropriate. So a lot of emphasis has been put on uh, the, the court's involvement in the determination of compensation to be paid. And I am a bit worried given the fact that this, this court will be a creature of statute, that at this moment, in between reading this bill as well as the expropriation bill, uh, there seems to be a, a, a failure to deal with the right to, to, to embark on a process of judicial review on, of the decision to expropriate. And if she is in a position to, to, to comment whether a failure to do so in these two pieces of legislation or draft legislation would then ultimately create this strange situation where the, in terms of the inherent jurisdiction of our high courts, that specific issue would still fall within its jurisdiction whilst a review of, of the, the proposed amount of compensation would then be reserved for to deal with by the, the, the land court. So the only, uh, in that regard, in conclusion, Chair, the only I, uh, powers I've, I've seen in the bill to the land court in this regard is the, the ability, which is fairly standard, of course, for our courts to, to give what is called appropriate relief. But one might also argue that the, the the inherent ability of our courts to always give appropriate relief must, must rather be limited to situations or scenarios where, where um, the, the dictates of fairness would require our courts to, to, to give effect through, through judgments and, and orders to, to the, the findings they've made. And that, that can surely not be used in order to, to, allow the land court to deal with, with those specific reviews. Thanks. Thank you. Any other hand? 
Thank you. Um, you asked me, first of all, to identify the sections in the bill which I regard as unconstitutional, and they are very much the sections which I talked about in my oral presentation, and, and they are, are also identified in our written submission. I will be providing of a copy of the oral presentation to the secretary of the committee. Uh, but in essence, it will be issues around uh, the whole idea of a specialist court picked to do the government's bidding, the assessors, the procedures, the admission of evidence, and the compulsory arbitration and um, mediation procedures, as I was talking about. You ask um, whether those compulsory arbitration procedures in particular can be balanced with the right of access to court. And I think that they can't be, that that's another area where the bill is unconstitutional. Everybody under Section 34 has the right to have a dispute which can be settled by the application of the law to be heard before an independent and impartial court. And under the Land Court Bill, effectively, you will either have to go for compulsory arbitration or run the risk of what could well be a punitive costs order. And that seems to be an important limitation of the right of access to court, which is not justifiable in all the circumstances. You also asked about uh, the role of assessors. I think undoubtedly they can be the majority on the court, as, as the bill, the land court bill puts it. Once they have been sworn in or made an affirmation, they become members of the court. So you will have two assessors who are members of the court, plus a single presiding judge, three people. And then the majority of the members of the court will make decisions on fact. So quite clearly, the assessors can overrule the judge on matters of fact. And that is an extraordinary provision to put into a bill because assessors, by definition, do not have the institutional independence that judges have. They may not have the necessary individual independence and impartiality. And in addition, um, they simply are unlikely to have the experience that judges acquire over many years on the bench of listening to testimony of, as I was saying, being able to uh, identify potential falsehoods, being able to assess credibility, to evaluate probabilities and so on. The, the identifying of the facts and adjudicating, coming to the conclusion that this is what the facts are, is a complex process and it should not be um, left to assessors who lack all the criteria that judges have to ensure that they are better equipped to do a proper job. You also asked, that was raised by one of the points, about what sort of expertise assessors should have. At the moment, of course, there is nothing in the bill on, on, as to what kind of expertise they should have. Um, and there is a risk that the expertise that might be looked for by the government will be rather one-sided that we might have people who are, um, have been are land activists in essence, um, who have very little regard for the importance of the, the Fraser Institute data that I provided, the essential importance of property rights in boosting the individual prosperity of all people. Um, and it's very important that one should not have people brought in whose expertise is all on one side. And that might well be the risk also with the assessors. Um, 
Then you also asked about the ability of the land court. Um, it's, it's very likely to deal with matters of, of compensation payable under expropriation and see those as questions of fact to be decided by the assessors. Would it also be able to look at the validity of the expropriation, whether the decision to expropriate complied with the provisions in section 25? Is it really uh, in the public interest, for example, more easy to determine whether it's for a public purpose? Um, and those kinds of decisions, according to the expropriation bill, should be possible to be raised in a court. And I, I think the expropriation bill is always rather fudged as it talks more about compensation than other things. But it does certainly say that its emphasis on compensation doesn't prevent an expropriated owner who is aggrieved by what's being offered from raising other points, which makes indicates that the validity of the expropriation could be considered as well. So I think the land court also could be asked to, to uh, adjudicate on the validity of the expropriation. And that could be presumably a matter of law to be decided by the judge. But in many instances, the key questions really will be what should be the amount of compensation. And it will be um, difficult, I think, for, for assessors to, uh, to weigh adequately all the facts that need to be taken into account in deciding, for example, whether the expropriation bills, no compensation criteria have been met. And I gave an example, um, have owners abandoned their property because they're no longer able to exercise control over it? We know how often there have been land invasions. Will that be sufficient in the minds of an assessor to say, well, the owner has lost control in any way, it doesn't matter through what process he lost control. The control is lost and therefore their property cannot be expropriated for no compensation. So though I think the land court bill could deal with validity, more often the issues will be around the amount of compensation. Um, just perhaps as an aside, the most important guarantee of fairness in the expropriation bill would be to ensure that no expropriation can proceed, that, that no expropriation notice can be issued in cases of dispute until a court of law, a proper court of law, with an experienced and um, properly institutionally independent judge, is satisfied about both the validity of the expropriation and that the compensation on offer strikes the necessary equitable balance between the public interest in land reform and the interests of the expropriated owner. And only after a court has made that determination should an expropriation be able to proceed. Um, then you also asked about, um, yeah, I think that was, that, that was all the questions. So let me end there. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Anthea Jeffrey. We have now been joined by Honorable Jele and Honorable Ramulube, who had apologized that they would be late. They have joined us. We are welcome. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, members, can we have a break um, until quarter to 12? Um, we are left with two presenters, the National House of Traditional Leaders and Christian Leaders, and UCPIS. 
I know from here we'll be going straight to the house. So this will also to allow members to take lunch before we we join the house at two. Uh, is that in order, members? Yes, sir. Thank you very much. Can we come back at quarter to 12? Uh, we are adjourned until quarter to 12. Recording stopped.
Ikaw naman. Eh, singa pa lang mga maseliridi. Ewa si Regis lang. Okay, lina 20 minutes. Because uh, if you do a full lang, when you full sit, okay, we just present number six full lang. Committee secretary, go to Bangladesh. Good day, Chair. Yes, I'm going to give you a little bit of Yes, there we go. Thank you, Chairperson uh, of the Portfolio Committee, Honorable Makwanishe, the members of the Portfolio Committee, the presenters, and everybody who's uh, in this platform. First of all, uh, let me appreciate the invitation to be part of, of these public hearings, Chairperson. Uh, As we know that uh, our participation is very key on behalf of our communities and working together, we can do more. And as the National House of Traditional and Question Leaders, we are also, uh, we also have a duty to advise government. That's why we are also here. Coming to this platform chair, I'm coming here as a leader of delegation, according to my uh, duties. I'm accompanied by the chairperson of the, of the Justice Crime Prevention and Security Committee, Ngozi Ngonyama, and Ngozi Kumede, the chairperson of the committee that deals with land matters. And we have got our administration is part of us. First of all, chairperson, uh, we know that uh, these types of uh, legislation, pieces of legislation, they are going to assist us. As much as we can look at them as they, uh, just pieces, pieces, but not uh, as we know that we still have a challenge of the, 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 that, that uh, legislation, the act that deals with land matters. But when I'm looking to, to, uh, at these uh, pieces of legislation, they are addressing some of the issues that, uh, that were supposed to be addressed by the principal act. So they are assisting us. Let me really, really appreciate the work you are doing as parliament to have come up with those uh, pieces of legislation. As we know that also uh, from our side as traditional leaders, we are faced with issues of land claims. Now this is also assisting us because this is a delaying a progress on, the, on development of the communities where there are claims. Ngozi Ngonyama will, uh, will be uh, presenting on behalf of, of, of the house, but let me also indicate that as we have, uh, 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 you have already identified the challenges. That's why you have called us to, this, to, to these discussions. So what I have learned to chair from your discussions as portfolio committee chairs, uh, when coming to, 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 the, to the public hearings, I'll just go straight to what you have given us because sometimes uh, I can, for instance, now I can be tempted to ask you about our 20, uh, 2017 resolution about the uh, giving land back to the traditional leaders. But I know that this committee is not the relevant committee for that. So I've learned a lot when coming uh, to, to, to these discussions. Unkosungo Nanganyama will be presenting. 
on 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 uh, on our behalf. Uh, thank you very much, Chairperson. Uh, we will be waiting for uh, comments and questions from your side. But what is key for us is a fast 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 tracking of this um, legislation because they are going to assist us. Unlike our bill, that is traditional court bill. When I looked at this, it was talking about court. Oh, I said no, it mustn't inherit what has happened to the traditional court bill. It takes, it takes so many years. So I hope this one will not uh, go that route. Thank you very much, Chair. I will give to Ngosu Gonyama to pre present on our behalf. Thank you very much, Mamam Shaoli. Thank you, Sabulel. Ngosu Gonyama. Good morning, uh, Honorable Chairperson of the Portfolio Committee. As uh, uh, has been already uh, introduced by the Honorable Chairperson of the House, Ngosu Gonyama representing the House. Uh, I wish to state by mentioning that we are dealing with a very sensitive issue. Emotions run very high when dealing with this matter. It is also worth mentioning that we call upon as royalty of a proper way of restoring the communal land, which is held by royalty, an emphasis for people. I want to emphasize this because many times people uh, are mistaking when we say we are holding the land. They think that we are holding the land for us. No, that, that is a wrong perception and the narrative is it, it, it's, it's incorrect and misleading. We, we are holding the land for the people. The beneficiaries of, those, of the land are the people. Uh, on that note, we, 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 do not all, we do not at all at this point in time promote uh, it is worth mentioning, uh, let me mention that, to promote the individual target deeds in rural communities. For one reason, 22 million people in this country are grant dependents. They can't even pay omachonisa, what we call shark loans. They go and leave their cards, they're taking the money, they can't even pay. Once they are pressured by financial constraints, it would be easy for them uh, to make their homes as collaterals. How on earth can one be able to service a bond when he can't even service Umachonisa? In that regard, it would be a recipe for disaster. Hence now, we are calling for a proper way and in the correct manner that would address the issue of land registration in communal, uh, the communal land registration for the benefit of the rural people, not individuals. Otherwise, 22 million people would definitely lose those, uh, those, those homes. On that note, Chair, I will go straight now. Those were my, were, my, were my opening comments. I will just zoom straight now to the comments that we uh, compiled as the National House. We do have a committee on issues of this nature, because it's a land issue that has got a, a, a court as well or a legislation part, we normally hold what we call a joint committee, a committee that is made, a committee for land and my committee, the committee that I lead. As Mamoum Shaoli has made that introduction, Songosi Kumete is the chairperson of the land committee. It is worth uh, noting that. I would go straight to the, our introduction. The Land Court Bill was introduced in the National Assembly on 20 May 2019 and has been classified as a Section 75 Bill falling within the ambit of Section 39, Subsection 1 
of the traditional and Khoisan Leadership Act of 2019, which is Act number three. The bill was referred to the National House of Traditional and Khoisan Leaders by the Secretary of Parliament for comments, for comments not later than 20 August 2021. This submission is made by the National House and Khoisan Leaders, a statutory body established in terms of the National House of Traditional and Khoisan Leaders uh, act number, of Act number 3 of 2019. The role of the House is, amongst others, to promote the role of traditional leaders within a democratic constitutional dispensation. Its main objective is to deal with matters relating to traditional leadership, the role of traditional leaders, customary law, and customs of communities, observing a system of customary law. The African continent, which over the years has been under the leadership of the institution of traditional leadership, was affected by colonialism and apartheid. The regime inflicted, inflicted a lot of hurt to the institution of traditional leadership to the extent that some traditional leaders ended up serving, ended up serving them as means to survive the brutality of the said government. Traditional leaders who did not comply with the regime were stripped of their powers and made to flee their homes. It, it was a sad state of affairs. Hence, now we are happy when all these pieces of legislation are put into, into place to correct the, the, the wrongs of the past. The custom and customary laws of different communities were affected by this regime, and the powers of traditional leaders were taken away. Traditional leaders were forced to align their customary laws and cultures with the laws of the time, uh, which uh, I must put an emphasis as well again, that when we talk of the laws of the time, they are still applicable to date, defeating uh, the customary laws and the way people were doing their own things in as far as customary laws concerned. Traditional leaders continue to fight to reclaim what rightfully belongs to them as leaders of their communities with more emphasis on land. Hence, I did mention in my opening remarks that this is a very sensitive issue uh, and the emotions run very high. Land cannot be separated from the institution of traditional leadership. Uh, the wars that were fought here, uh, all the wars that were fought uh, by the royalty or led by the, royal, the royalty were the laws that relate to land. Hence, now we talk of this uh, issue of the land that cannot be separated from the institution of traditional leadership. The National House of Traditional and Khoisan Leaders comments and submit, excuse me, comments, your sorry. So, just excuse me, okay. Uh, you left with 11 minutes. Thank you, sir. Thank you. I was correcting my, my gadget. Uh, the National House of Traditional Leaders, Traditional and Khoisan Leaders' comments and submissions with regard to the land court are as follows. Clause to purpose of the bill. The National House of Traditional and Khoisan Leaders appreciates the efforts by the Department of Justice and Correctional Services to introduce the land court bill, which seeks to establish a dedicated court to deal with claims for restitution of land. There is a need for a permanent court and permanent judges for this purpose, as this will result in expeditious disposal of land restitution claims to the satisfaction of land claimants. We, we deal with clause by clause, we, we deal with clauses, but we don't uh, pay attention to all the clauses, Chair, for the benefit of the committee. We take those that are applicable to, our, to, to the royalty. So when I, I will jump some other clauses and focus on the clauses that we felt that they talked to us, um, we, we then clause six, the seat of court. Section six, subsection one of the bill provides for the seat of the court to be in Johannesburg, and that whenever it appears 
whenever it appears to the judge president that it is expedient or in the interests of justice to hold its sitting for the hearing of any matter at a place elsewhere than at the seat of the court. It may hold such sitting at that place. That is uh, what section six says. As traditional leaders, we, are, we support this section in that land limits from traditional communities are forced to travel long distances to access courts, and it will be cheaper and speedier if the court can hold its sitting at a place that is more accessible to the people in rural communities. So our emphasis is mainly on the last paragraph of stating that the, the just president should, uh, when, see, when he, sees, he sees fit, that the seat of the court should be where it is closer to the climax. But on that note, Chair, the National House further recommends that the word may be replaced with the must to compel the court to hold its sitting at a, at, at, to, to, to hold its sitting for the hearing of any matter at a place elsewhere than at the seat of the court. So we are recommending that the may must be replaced by must so that the court can see that it is necessary that they go to where the claimants are. Clause 12, appointment of assessors. This clause makes provision that the court may sit with, with or without assessors who may, no, who may not be more than two to assist the court in contested hearings. Assessors appointed as prescribed and must first take an oath and make an affirmation admitted by the judge. National House is of the view that there are people in rural communities who have experience and knowledge in matters regarding the disposition of their land rights and the rules governing the allocation and occupation of land within the community and therefore recommend that these people with historical facts should be considered for appointment. Chair, it is worth mentioning again on a point of, of, of emphasis. If we look at people now holding PhDs the, or the scholars of note, they either do what we call qualitative research or quantitative research. When doing a, quali a, quantitative, a, a qualitative research, you go to the people who knows about what you want to write about? This is exactly what we are talking about here, that they might not be scholars, those people, but the fact that you go to them to seek for an information that would make you a PhD holder at some point, those are the people that can never be disregarded and be ignored by the society. They are very valuable, and we need them to be part of these processes in as far as assessors is concerned uh, and assisting the courts. Uh, the National House is of the view that, oh, I've already mentioned this, are going to clause 13, execution of proceedings. This clause provides as to who has local standing to institute court proceedings under this act. 99% of land claims in this country are instituted by traditional leaders on behalf of, com of committee members. It is therefore recommended, it is the recommendation of the National House that the bill should make it clear that traditional leaders can institute proceedings in this act on behalf of their traditional communities. So we also emphasize the fact that in any society, there's, some, there's somebody to, to lead that particular society. In South Africa, we are led by the president. In rural communities, we are led by the tra traditional communities. Therefore, on behalf of the communities, let them be the people who will be recognized as people who can institute a proceedings in terms of the, of the local standing. Clause 16, intervention to proceedings before court, right to appear in legal representation. This clause empowers any person to apply to the court for leave to intervene in the proceedings before the court. A party to the proceedings may self-represent or, or be represented in court by their own legal practitioner at their own cost. However, 
if a party cannot afford legal representation and it is in the interest of that party to have legal representation, the court must refer the matter to Legal Aid South Africa to consider granting legal representation. The National House is against the court referring the matter to Legal Aid of South Africa and recommend that where a party cannot afford to pay for legal representation, the court must arrange legal representation at the expense of the commission that would be set up. Uh, we are not at by no means undermining legal aid of South Africa. They've got the the expertise, they are trained lawyers, but it is uh, worth noting that most of their training is uh, towards criminal matters due to their crime rate in South Africa. It, the, the department that deals with matters of, of, of civil litigation, it is there, but it is not as strong as the one of criminal matter. That is, uh, that is a fact. So we recommend that if we recommend that a commission should look into that or should uh, appoint a the, 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 the representative to hold this normally it's done by outsourcing to the to the private attorneys who have got, who have got expertise in this area otherwise because we uh, i did indicate earlier that people in rural communities are grant dependents it would mean that this justice will not be served uh, for them if we take that particular route clause 22 admissibility of evidence this clause deals with the admissibility of evidence in court. The court is entitled to admit evidence, including oral evidence, which it, con it, it considers relevant and cogent to the matter being heard by it. Whether or not such evidence would be admissible in any other court of law, the court can admit hearsay evidence regarding, regarding the circumstances surrounding the disposition of a land right or rights and the rules governing the disposition of a land right or rights and the rules governing the disposition and occupation occupation of land right and the rules governing the disposal occupation of land within within a claimant a uh, within a claimant community at allocation and occupation of land within this is a duplication within a claimant community at the time of disposition and expect evidence regarding the historical and anthropological anthropological facts relevant to any particular land claim uh, it is worth mentioning again Chair, that uh, when you look at the law of evidence, we we know that some evidences are not uh, are admitted by court or they are regarded as inadmissible. But for the for, we we are even uh, th these are my comments now. They are not written uh, in the notes. We also get to know that there is what we call similar fact evidence, which we we, we also would recommend that for the purposes and the context of what we are discussing now be regarded as the evidence that can be taken into consideration by the court because we are taking we are talking of something that the people have that is not written down but it has been uh, narrated from one generation to other generation and you find the statement so consistent throughout these generations in as far as these issues are concerned clause 8 court orders this clause sets out various orders that the court can make and that it may at any stage after a dispute has been referred to it. If it, it becomes apparent that the dispute ought to have been referred to mediation or arbitration, stay the proceedings and refer the dispute to, to mediation or arbitration. Traditional leaders agree with this clause in that this will ensure that land-related disputes are resolved speedily and may be settled out of court by using the mediation and arbitration approach. Chair, it is again worth mentioning that in 2020, I think it was in March, the true Rule 41A of the of the High Court rules 
the process of mediation was introduced. It's not old. This was for the pe- one so f- for the purpose of, of not clocking the court rules. So mediation is highly, highly recommended. So we would all, and it also assists rural communities because when you approach an attorney, you have to have money, even the, at consultation level. Those people are, as we have mentioned, they are grant dependents. So we it's not easy for them. They end up giving giving up because of lack of finances or due to financial muscle. So we really uh, uh, recommend this particular uh, clause in as far as mediation is concerned. Uh, Clause 28, uh, subsection 3, subsection C. This clause states that the court may make an order for the state to pay claimants compensation. The National House recommends that independent evaluations from the side of the community should be allowed to assess the amount for compensation. So we don't, uh, I wouldn't agree for a blanket compensation. So people should be given an opportunity to know exactly how much was their land worth and what the compensation compensation would be. And if they need to challenge that, those are my comments, they, 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 they may be at liberty to do that. So we recommend this particular clause, but uh, safeguarding the interests of the community. Clause 51, transitional arrangements. Subclause uh, 1A provides for any proceedings arising out of the application of this act or any other law conferring jurisdiction on the court pending in any other in any other court other than the land claims court established by section 22 of the Restriction of Land Rights Act at the commencement of this act must be continued and concluded in every respect as if this act has not been passed. The National House recommends that in respect of claimants who already lost their claims in terms of the Restriction Act must be given the opportunity to choose whether their claims should be finalized in terms of the Land Court Act or in terms of the Restitution Act. So we are we are saying in, in, in a nutshell, let people get given a right to choose as to which one, but we do not know uh, and we are not clear whether uh, the, in fact, it, 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 whether this the, 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 this particular act is going to repeal the other act, but in the event that it's not repealed, we would like the, our communities to be given that right to exercise their choice. Clause fifty three regulations. Uh, we know for a fact. Thank you, Chair. I'm wrapping up. This is my this is my last this is my last paragraph, Chair. I'm wrapping up. We'll give you Chair, one minute uh, to wrap up. Thank you. Uh, Chair, we know that with the Act, it's what needs to be done. The how part of it will be contained in the regulations. This is where some of the problems uh, creeps up. So we want to, and as a point of emphasis, Clause 53 talks about regulations. The National House recommends that when making regulations, the minister must do that in consultation with the National House of Traditional and Hoysan leaders, and we would like to be part of that drafting of the regulations. That concludes uh, our submission, Chair hoping that our comments will be considered. It is worth mentioning that these submissions were already submitted to Parliament, so we didn't flight any, believing that the, the document is already in possession of the Parliament. I thank you. Thank you very much, Ngozira Zungonyama. Mm-hmm. Members, uh, any questions to the House of Traditional Leaders in Khoisan? Um, it seems to be no questions. Um, Gosiga Zingonyama and Gosiga Mamklaula, all those recommendations or inputs, 
are going to be considered when we deal with the bill clause by clause. Um, the department is here to listen to all the, all the issues that are being raised. They're going to come back with specific responses to some of them. Then after those responses, then we'll start deliberating as the, com- as the committee and uh, uh, clause by clause on the desirability of each and uh, taking into account what has been raised uh, by members of the community, including ourselves. Um, but you are free to follow up, to follow uh, the proceedings on, on, on the virtual platform where when we are deliberating uh, on this bill, but we would want to finish this bill as soon as it is practically possible. Uh, we don't intend to have uh, this bill uh, taking as long as the traditional court's bill. Uh, we want to finish it uh, this year, hopefully before the end of June. Thank you very much to the House of Traditional Leaders and the question. Uh, thank mm-hmm. you very much. Thank you, Chairperson. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Agbis, Ms. Crosby, is, is, is she in? Yes, Chair, I am. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, um, Honourable Chair, Honourable Members. Um, if the um, Committee Secretary can just allow me to share my screen. Yes. So you have 20 minutes to make your presentation. We'll start counting from 12 minutes past 12. Okay, Chair, I'm just, I see I'm, okay, okay, there we go. Um, All right. Can you see the screen? Thank you, yes. All right, thank you very much. So um, I'm going to run very quickly over who um, Agbus is. Um, as well as what our interest in this um, bill is. And then I'll zoom in on the details um, of the uh, presentation on the various clauses, Chair. So um, ACBIS is basically a voluntary association of agribusinesses. We have banks, development finance institutions, crop insurance companies, commodity organizations, etc., were members of ACBIS. And our function basically is to ensure that agribusiness plays a constructive role in the country's economic growth, development, and transformation. Um, because Agbus and its members are committing, committed to building an agricultural sector that's prosperous and dynamic and sustainable, we also have an interest in land reform and the land reform program because we believe that that is a prerequisite for sustainability. Many of our agribusinesses are also involved in supporting new entrants to the farming sector. And that is also why we have an interest in the bill, because we believe that the land court is an integral part of the institutional framework required to drive land reform in South Africa. So we we basically support the the bill because we feel that there is a role for um, a specialized court that deals with land matters. And like other presenters have also already alluded to, the high-level panel has highlighted that the limited capacity of the land claims court is a problem. It is a bottleneck. I agree with with other presenters that the court in itself will not fix all our problems with land reform. There are lots of other things that need to be addressed, but we do believe that the, the court does have a role. There are two issues that we would like to highlight as general comments, Jay. The first being 
the appeal court. The question that we basically have there is whether the case, the, the, the case load justifies um, a court of appeal. Um, we don't foresee that many cases going to the land appeals court, and I think that is something that needs to be considered. And then the second one, which a number of other presentations have also talked to, is the issue of compulsory arbitration in Clause 13 of the bill, which is something that we are quite concerned about. Um, we support the mediation. We, we believe that mediation can definitely contribute to the settlement of disputes um, and, and not necessitate parties to, to go to court if they can reach one another. But arbitration is quite different from, from mediation. It's a quasi-judicial process where um, a third party makes a ruling. And we believe, um, and I know that other pre presenters um, express this opinion as well, that it may well be um, a limitation on a party's right to have a dispute resolved by court as provided for in Section 34 of our Constitution. So, Jay, some detailed comments. Um, first of all, um, in the definitions, the definition of claim refers only to the Restitution of Land Rights Act. It seems to exclude labour-tenant claims. We, we believe that it should also refer to labour-tenant claims. Um, the definition of dispute, we think, should not include alleged dispute because we, um, we worry that that may open the door um, for the court to adjudicate on matters that we correct, the correct procedures have not been followed and that that can undermine procedural fairness. Then as far as Clause 8 is concerned, the appointment of judges. So Subsection 4 requires that at least half of the judges have to be judges of the High Court. Um, but it, it doesn't require that the judges necess uh, necessarily have the requisite knowledge um, of court um, procedure. And therefore, we propose an additional subclause that could be added that would indeed require appointees to also have the required knowledge of court procedures. Furthermore, Clause 8 requires the President to appoint judges on the advice of the Judicial Services Commission, but it also permits the Minister to appoint acting judges. Um, whilst we realise that this is in line with, for example, the Labour Relations Act, um, it is unclear why this duty is split between the President and the Minister. And we believe that the Judge President would in all likelihood be in the better position to judge the need for acting judges and should probably um, play that role. Clause 13, the institution of proceedings, it requires the Registrar to refer all matters to the Judge President of the receiving notification um, of a person's intention to institute proceedings. The Judge President is then required to decide whether the matter should be sent to mediation or arbitration, judged on the criteria set out in subclause 4. Whilst we do not oppose the criteria is such, we believe that it may be premature for the Judge President to at this stage make a decision before he or she has had sight of all the arguments advanced by the parties to the dispute. Um, which may also include a friend of the court. So we propose that all parties should be permitted to submit their pleadings and host the pretrial conference before such an evaluation be made. Then on the issue of arbitration, Chair, the only benefit that arbitration really has over formal litigation is that it is inquisitorial in nature and that a less formal procedure may apply. It may reduce costs. Apparently, in practice, it does not even always um, have that 
um, result. So as Clause 14.2 already allows for the land court to conduct proceedings on an informal and inquisitorial basis, we don't really don't see the need um, for, for forced arbitration. And like I've already stated, you know, we believe that it may be a limitation on the um, right to a fair trial in terms of Section 34 of the um, Constitution. So the entire premise of the bill is based on the argument that land reform is a specialized field that requires specialist judges. There is no indication in Clause 32 that an arbitrator needs to be a specialist in the field of land reform. Finally, it's doubtful that an arbitrator would be able to decide on an eviction application under ESTA, the Extension of Security of Tenure Act, or the Prevention of Illegal Eviction Act, um, because of Section 26 of the Constitution that says that nobody might be evicted from their home without an order of court. As an alternative to compulsory um, arbitration, sorry, the Portfolio Committee could consider referring a matter to an expert for administrative adjudication. Matters related to expropriation and compensation in particular could benefit from such a process as the finer details of calculating the productive value of a farm used for certain agricultural commodities could benefit from the insight of a specialist valuer. What sets this process apart from compulsory arbitration is that the first party must have specialist expertise, the parties to the um, litigation must consent to it, and the determination can be reviewed by a court of law. Then as far as Clause 14 is concerned, the rules governing the procedure of the court, it requires um, the um, rules relating to the high court to apply also to the land court. But it says with the necessary changes required by the context to court. Whilst we understand that the land court's rules may need to be different from the high court rules, it's not clear who decides when changes are necessitated and at what point this takes place. Um, so it seems as though the court may decide on a case by cases whether the context justifies um, deviation. Such a, such a situation, we believe, can cause a lot of uncertainty and it would place potential litigations in a better position if the judge president was empowered to issue practice directives or required to publish deviations from the high court rules to provide certainty. Clause 17, which deals with the powers of court on the hearing of appeals, um, once again refers to compulsory arbitration, which is something that we do not support. Clause 18, judgment by default, um, provision is supported in principle, but the provision should perhaps be qualified in the context of an eviction order under Pi or Esther. Once again, because of Section 23 of the Constitution that says that person can only be evicted um, by a court. So it may not be sufficient for the court to merely be satisfied that the proper service process was followed, as the court will also have to consider all relevant circumstances. Clause 22, which deals with the admissibility of evidence, I think a lot has been said about this by other presenters as well. Um, so we do know that hearsay evidence is permitted specifically under rest the Restitution Act. But um, when we're dealing with other pieces of legislation, such as ESTA, um, those pieces of legislation do not expressly provide for hearsay evidence. Clause 28, court orders. 
Um, in line with our principal opposition to compulsory arbitration, we propose that subclause G, which refers to the um, compulsory arbitration, should be deleted. We also propose that the scope of this clause be expanded to apply to all legislation falling under the court's jurisdiction and not just the Restitution Act. Clause 30, which deals with costs, pretty too specifically requires the court to consider whether a matter should have been taken to mediation or arbitration in awarding a, a cost order. It is, however, unjust to punish a litigant with a punitive cost order where the judge president has decided that the matter should proceed directly to court. Clause 31, which deals with mediation, like I've already stated, we, we support mediation, but there may be some omissions in the procedures that are set out in subclauses two and three. For instance, the clause does not set out who appoints the mediator or whether the mediator is required to have specialist knowledge and expertise in land rights matters. The bill also fails to take cognizance of mediation procedures set out in the ESTA Amendment Bill. This bill creates new institutions such as the Land Rights Management um, Board and the Land Rights Management Committees. The legislation also sets out a procedure whereby these institutions must, must attempt to mediate tenure conflicts before an eviction order is considered. So we, we just think that this clause needs to be aligned with the Esther Amendment Bill. Then clause 33 is a settling of matters. Um, whilst we support settlement agreements being endorsed by the court, it's not appropriate to list arbitration under this clause as arbitration is not based on agreement. Then chapter five, um, dealing with the, the Court of Appeal, um, like I've already stated, we don't believe that the caseload justifies a specialist Court of Appeal. And then in terms of the schedule um, and the laws amended, it seems that the schedule um, awards the land court exclusive jurisdiction over cases brought under um, both Sorry, there's something a matter with the text there. Um, Esther and Pi, I think. Um, and we, I think the point was also made by the, the um, traditional leaders delegation that um, the court should be accessible to the, the people that are before court. So maybe not a good idea to have people travel far to, to reach the court, but to, to make the courts accessible. Thank you very much, G. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for, for the presentation. Can you remove the presentation from the screen? Certainly. There we go. Thank you very much. Uh, members, are there any questions to Ms. Crosby? We have Honorable Horn. We proceed, Honorable Horn. Thank you, Chair. Um, I would like to um, source an opinion from Ms. Crosby um, regarding the criteria that should apply for me for people to qualify to be appointed as mediators in our arbitrators in, in terms of this, this bill. And I want to firstly source an opinion as to whether the, the bill as it now reads would, would preclude 
um, judges that are not destined to deal with a specific matter to be seized with the arbitration. And if not, whether that is a something that should be considered when the bill was first published, it, it would would have it seemed as if the the general analysis um, out there uh, thought that that was the intention behind arbitration. But now through the public participation process, I get a sense that the 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 analysis of those who, who pre- presented today points more to a to a situation where people other than the judges will be tasked with with um, dealing with the arbitration and whether uh, uh, she or uh, the institution she represents would be interested in in terms of a follow up um, written presentation to to assist with criteria given the fact that they they as other presenters seem to be of the opinion that this should be um, more carefully regulated right from the outset. Thank you, Chair. Thank you very much, Honorable Horn. Uh, Ms. Crosby? Yes, Chair. Um, so, first of all, Chair, um, like, like I said, we are not in favour of arbitration, but um, having regard to that, um, certainly to start with the last, last part of the, the question, we would be interested in um, coming up with written criteria if the committee would allow us. And I'm sure some of the other organisations presenting would also welcome that opportunity. Um, a mediator, of course, would need to be somebody who is skilled in mediation. Um, I think that is a given, but also I think somebody who um, has a background in land reform. And land reform, of course, is is quite broad also. Um, You know, so somebody who specialised in restitution will not necessarily be the right kind of of mediator to mediate a a tenure dispute under ESTA or um, communal rights or whatever the case may be. So I think we we need land specialists um, with mediation experience and um, probably some people with um, with legal backgrounds, but also in certain cases you're going to need people um, with, for example, uh, evaluation background if if disputes are um, around the issue of um, of compensation, for example. So you're probably looking at a, at a range of specialists. Years ago, we had IMSA, the um, Independent Mediation Society of South Africa, and they were they speci- they were specialized mediators, and they they looked at land disputes. They were actually very successful in settling many of the the land disputes. So we probably need to build up um, a panel of of skilled mediators once again that are specialized. Um, in in land reform. As far as the question whether the bill precludes um, judges to to act as as arbitrators, if I understood that that question correctly, um, I'm not sure if that's a reference to clause 8 of the bill, but um, that that is something I think that we would need to get back to you on. I don't have the bill in front of me at, at this point in time. Um, so I'm I'm actually not sure whether or not it would um, exclude 
um, judges that are not sitting at the moment to act as arbitrators, if I understood the question correctly. Thank you very much, Ms. Crosby. Any other follow-up members? Uh, thank you very much, uh, Ms. Crosby, for your presentation. Um, most of the issues that you raised would form part of our deliberation as we'll be deliberating in a few weeks to come. We will start with the response from the department on the issues that have been raised um, by various stakeholders who, who, who would have presented uh, to us or written to us because some people uh, just write uh, their submissions in writing, they don't come. Uh, but all of they have equal weight. We, we would consider all the presentations that were made both orally and in writing and respond to them and deliberate uh, on the bill. But we thank you very much for taking your time and applying yourself uh, with your organization in making this uh, public participation to be a successful one, uh, also to, to enhance the quality of our our legal drafting. We thank you very much. And that thank brings you. us, yes, thank you. That brings us to the end of our public hearings for today. Bonani, um, what time do we start tomorrow? That is the program. We will start. At Yes, Chair. Maybe ju just to indicate that uh, those are the five organizations that are confirmed for tomorrow. Uh, the FW Declared Foundation is not available. They say they're not available. Uh, also, uh, LARC, uh, that is UCT, they are also not available. Okay. So we would be done by 10 past one according to the program. Yes, Chair. No, thank you very much. So we, we are starting at five to nine uh, tomorrow morning. That will be the last day of our public hearings on this bill. And if I may just digress a bit, uh, Honorable Tanji and Honorable Breitenbach, is it possible that uh, next week you can give us at least a program uh, with regards to the issues we asked you to do? One, the date for the meeting, your meeting with the uh, uh, Judge Cameron, uh, Professor Mutting, and when possibly can we have those workshops? And we, are, we also asked you to develop a program, in fact, to set up a meeting that will discuss an oversight program for, for the year. Yes, Mr. Chair, certainly we can do that by next week, no problem. On which day next week would you like to have it? I think uh, we can start uh, with it on Tuesday, just a report. Yeah. 
That's fine. It will be ready. Great. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, members, are there any other issues before we adjourn the meeting? None. Uh, we will meet in the house where the meeting is adjourned. Thank you very much.